Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. This caller from the 712. I just had a couple things. I was listening to the whole broadcast at work. I pulled out um, that feet when somebody kept saying that he had feet of clay. Well, he didn't say it over and over again. It just stuck out to me. It's, it was in the Yaki story or the uh, Yaki, if I'm pronouncing it right. And I went and looked that up because I wanted to see what it means because I always I get real interested when people start using phrases. And um, it means a fundamental flaw or weakness in a person otherwise revered. So... You know, they revered him. And then um, for um, Mr. Jack Johnson, I just wanted to say that Jack Johnson, um, I believe he start, could be wrong, but I believe he started off in fighting because a long time ago, um, rich, racist, white supremacists used to pay, like, young people to fight each other, um, like a whole group of young people. And I think Jack Johnson was the best at that, and that's how... He got into boxing uh, mainstream for white people to enjoy. And I think I, I read about him a lot and uh, got a family member that's named after Jack Johnson. But I still think that he was a confused victim of racism by being, you know, having sex with those white women like that because I don't know. I just think he would have did better um, being married to a black woman and, I um, got a lot of information from all of the clips, and thank you so much for putting them together like you do, Gus, and I'll mute my line. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, May 4th. 2018. So I have been told this is our debut study session.
on Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man, one of Gus T's all-time favorites, top five in my top five, right up there with uh, the ISIS Papers, Medical Apartheid, Warmth of Other Suns, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison, uh, in my opinion, uh, some of the uh, best material that I have read uh, relating to racism, white supremacy, just happens to be in novel form, uh, is very entertaining, well-written, uh, I think. Uh, the deal for this book, since we read such a horrible book last time out, the worst book I've ever read, uh, Auntie Thomas's The Hate You Give, uh, that I wanted to cleanse my palate uh, and read something of quality. That's one. Two, uh, the deal that I said I'd be more than happy to make. This has to be unanimous. Uh, if even one person says, you know what, I'm really not feeling this. Let's read something else. We can pick something else. No problem. Pick a new book and uh, move forward constructively. Next Friday just cannot be, you know, can't be anything like we had last week. Uh, I think for the text, number one, that audio segment was from the compensatory call-in this past weekend. Uh, the caller was talking about uh, the legend, victim of white supremacy, Jack Johnson. And she was talking about how he got into boxing. That is exactly how this novel begins. Uh, and I didn't even mention immediately the connection that, oh yeah, that's exactly how our next book begins. You all will hear it in about mm, 10 minutes. Uh, anyway, things that you can pay attention to uh, as we read the book uh, wow. <laughs> Colors, that would be one. Uh, there are lots of, I guess, study aids within the archives of the context of white supremacy because this book is referenced so many times by so many uh, different people. Uh, but you can go back in the archives. Uh, we talked about at one point uh, Ellison studied art and that comes through in the text in his use of colors uh, and how he describes the imagery. Uh, that he conveys through the narrative. Just pay attention to the use of colors as we proceed through the text. Uh, I don't even think I need to say a whole lot. I think uh, you'll be able to follow the story. It's so expansive and rich and, and the characters. I mean, wow. And it's directly about racism, white supremacy. Uh, it won the National Book Award uh, in 1953. It is lauded to this day, almost 75 years after its publication, uh, by whites around the world, which is certainly cause for suspicion. Any book that is highly touted, recommended by whites. So keep that in mind since they praised the last book we read. Keep that in mind as we proceed. Uh, without further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Again, one of Gus T's all-time favorites, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Read for you by Joe Morton. Invisible Man I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe. Nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am... A man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. 
I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact, a matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. I, I am not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. Then, too, you are constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision, or, again, you often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds, say a figure in a nightmare, which the sleeper tries with all his strength to destroy. It's when you feel like this that, out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists, you curse and you swear to make them recognize you. And, alas, it's seldom successful. One night I accidentally bumped into a man, and perhaps because of the near darkness, he saw me and called me an insulting name. I sprang at him, seized his coat lapels, and demanded that he apologize. He was a tall, blonde man, and as my face came close to his, he looked insolently out of his blue eyes and cursed me, his breath hot in my face as he struggled. I pulled his chin down sharp upon the crown of my head, butting him as I had seen the West Indians do, and I felt his flesh tear and the blood gush out, and I yelled, Apologize! Apologize! But he continued to curse and struggle, and I butted him again and again until he went down heavily on his knees, profusely bleeding. I kicked him repeatedly in a frenzy, because he still uttered insults, though his lips were frothy with blood. Oh, yes, I kicked him. And in my outrage, I got out my knife and prepared to slit his throat right there beneath the lamplight in the deserted street, holding him in the collar with one hand and opening the knife with my teeth, when it occurred to me that the man had not seen me, actually, that he, as far as he knew, was in the midst of a walking nightmare. And I stopped the blade, slicing the air as I pushed him away, letting him fall back to the street. I stared at him hard as the lights of a car stabbed through the darkness. He lay there, moaning on the asphalt, a man almost killed by a phantom. It unnerved me. I was both disgusted and ashamed. I was like a drunken man myself, wavering about on weakened legs. Then I was amused. Something in this man's thick head had sprung out and beaten him within an inch of his life. I began to laugh at this crazy discovery. Would he have awakened at the point of death? Would death himself have freed him for wakeful living? <laughs> but I, I didn't linger. I, I ran away into the dark, laughing so hard I feared I might rupture myself. The next day I saw his picture in the Daily News beneath a caption stating that he had been mugged. Poor fool. <laughs> Poor blind fool, I thought with sincere compassion. Mugged by an invisible man.
most of the time, although I do not choose as I once did to deny the violence of my days by ignoring it, I am not so overtly violent. I remember that I am invisible and walk softly so as not to awaken the sleeping ones. Sometimes it is best not to awaken them. There are few things in the world as dangerous as sleepwalkers. I learned in time, though, that it is possible to carry on a fight against them without their realizing it. For instance, I have been carrying on a fight with monopolated light and power for some time now. I use their service and pay them nothing at all, and they don't know it. Oh, they suspect that power is being drained off, but they don't know where. All they know is that, according to the master meter back there in their power station, <laughs> a hell of a lot of free current is disappearing somewhere into the jungle of Harlem. The joke, of course, is that I don't live in Harlem, but in a border area. Several years ago, before I discovered the advantages of being invisible, I went through the routine process of buying service and paying their outrageous rates. But no more. I gave up all that, along with my apartment and my old way of life. That way based upon the fallacious assumption that I, like other men, was visible. Now, aware of my invisibility, I live rent-free in a building rented strictly to whites in a section of the basement that was shut off and forgotten during the 19th century, which I discovered when I was trying to escape in the night from Ross the Destroyer. But that's getting too far ahead of the story. Well, almost to the end. Although the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead. The point now is that I found a home. Or a hole in the ground, as you will. Now don't jump to the conclusion that because I call my home a hole, it is damp and cold like a grave. There are cold holes and warm holes. Mine is a warm hole. And remember, a bear retires to his hole for the winter and lives until spring. Then he comes strolling out like the Easter chick breaking from its shell. I say all this to assure you that it is incorrect to assume that because I'm invisible and live in a hole, I am dead. I am neither dead nor in a state of suspended animation. Call me Jack the Bear, for I am in a state of hibernation. My hole is warm and full of light. Yes, full of light. I doubt if there is a brighter spot in all New York than this whole of mine, and I do not exclude Broadway or the Empire State Building on a photographer's dream night. But that is taking advantage of you. Those two spots are among the darkest of our whole civilization. Ah, pardon me. Our whole culture, an important distinction I've heard. Which might sound like a hoax or a contradiction, but that, by contradiction I mean, is how the world moves. Not like an arrow, but a boomerang. Beware of those who speak of the spiral of history. They are preparing a boomerang. Keep a steel helmet handy. I know. I have been boomeranged across my head so much that I now can see the darkness of lightness. And I love light. Perhaps you'll think it strange that an invisible man should need light, desire light, love light. But maybe it is exactly because I am invisible. Light confirms my reality, gives birth to my form. 
A beautiful girl once told me of a recurring nightmare in which she lay in the center of a large, dark room and felt her face expand until it filled the whole room, becoming a formless mass while her eyes ran in bilious jelly up the chimney. And so it is with me. Without light, I am not only invisible but formless as well. And to be unaware of one's form is to live a death. I myself, after existing some twenty years, did not become alive until I discovered my invisibility. That is why I fight my battle with monopolated light and power, the deeper reason I mean. It allows me to feel my vital aliveness. I also fight them for taking so much of my money before I learn to protect myself. In my hole in the basement there are exactly 1,369 lights. I've wired the entire ceiling, every inch of it. And not with fluorescent bulbs, but with the older, more expensive-to-operate kind, the filament type. An act of sabotage, you know. I've already begun to wire the wall. A junk man, I know, a, a man of vision, has supplied me with wire and sockets. Nothing, storm or flood, must get in the way of our need for light, and ever more and brighter light. The truth is the light, and light is the truth. When I finish all four walls, then I'll start on the floor. Just how that will go, I don't know. Yet, when you have lived invisible as long as I have, you develop a certain ingenuity. I'll solve the problem. And maybe I'll invent a gadget to place my coffee pot on the fire while I lie in bed, and even invent a gadget to warm my bed, like the fellow I saw in one of the picture magazines who made himself a gadget to warm his shoes. Though invisible, I am in the great American tradition of tinkers. That makes me kin to Ford, Edison, and Franklin. Call me, since I have a theory and a concept, a thinker-tinker. Yes, I'll warm my shoes. They need it. They're usually full of holes. I'll do that and more. Now I have one radio phonograph. I plan to have five. There is a certain acoustical deadness in my hole, and when I have music I want to feel its vibration, not only with my ear, but with my whole body. I'd like to hear five recordings of Louis Armstrong playing and singing What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue, all at the same time. Sometimes now I listen to Louis while I have my favorite dessert of vanilla ice cream and slow gin. I pour the red liquid over the white mound, watching it glisten and the vapor rising as Louis bends that military instrument into a beam of lyrical sound. Perhaps I like Louis Armstrong because he's made poetry out of being invisible. I think it must be because he's unaware that he is invisible. And my own grasp of invisibility aids me to understand his music. Once when I asked for a cigarette, some jokers gave me a reefer, which I lighted when I got home and sat listening to my phonograph. It was a strange evening. Invisibility, let me explain, gives one a slightly different sense of time. You're never quite on the beat. Sometimes you're ahead and sometimes behind. 
instead of the swift and imperceptible flowing of time, you are aware of its nodes, those points where time stands still or from which it leaps ahead, and you slip into the bricks and look around. That's what you hear vaguely in Louis's music. Once I saw a prizefighter boxing a yokel. The fighter was swift and amazingly scientific. His body was one violent flow of rapid rhythmic action. He hit the yokel a hundred times while the yokel held up his arms in stunned surprise. But suddenly, the yokel, rolling about in the gale of boxing gloves, struck one blow and knocked science, speed, and footwork as cold as a well-digger's posterior. The smart money hit the canvas. The long shot got the nod. <laughs> the yokel had simply stepped inside of his opponent's sense of time. So, under the spell of the reefer, I discovered a new analytical way of listening to music. The unheard sounds came through, and each melodic line existed of itself, stood out clearly from all the rest, set its peace, and waited patiently for the other voices to speak. That night, I found myself hearing not only in time, but in space as well. I not only entered the music, but descended like Dante into its depths. And beneath the swiftness of the hot tempo, there was a slower tempo in a cave, and I entered it and looked around and heard an old woman singing a spiritual as full of weltschmerz as flamenco. And beneath that lay a still lower level on which I saw a beautiful girl, the color of ivory, pleading in a voice like my mother's as she stood before a group of slave owners who bid for her naked body. And below that I found a lower level and a more rapid tempo, and I heard someone shout, Brothers and sisters! My text this morning is the blackness of blackness. And a congregation of voices answered, That blackness is most black, brother, most black in the beginning. At the very start, they cried, there was blackness. Preach it. And the sun, the sun, Lord, was bloody red. Red. Now black is, the preacher shouted, bloody. I said he's preach it, brother, and black ain't red, Lord, red. He said it's red. Amen, brother. Black will get you. Yes, it will. Yes, it will and black won't no it won't it do it do lord and it don't hallelujah it'll put your glory glory oh my lord in the whale's belly preach it dear brother and make you tempt good god almighty old aunt nelly black will make you black or black will unmake you ain't it the truth lord and at that point a voice of trombone timber screamed at me get out of here you fool is you ready to commit treason and I tore myself away, hearing the old singer of spirituals moaning, Go curse your God, boy, and die. I stopped and questioned her, asked her what was wrong. I dearly loved my master's son, she said. You should have hated him, I said. He gave me several sons, she said. And because I loved my sons, I learned to love their father, though I hated him, too. I, too, have become acquainted with ambivalence, I said. That's why I'm here. What's that? Nothing. A word that doesn't explain it. Why do you moan? I moaned this way because he's dead, she said. Then tell me, who is that laughing upstairs? Them's my sons. They glad. Yes, I can understand that too, I said. I laughs too, but I moans too. He promised to set us free, but he never could bring himself to do it. Still, I loved him. Loved him? You mean, oh yes. But I loved something else even more. What more? Freedom. Freedom, I said. Maybe freedom lies in hating. No, son, it's in loving. I loved him and give him the, 
the poison, and he withered away like a, a frostbit apple. Them boys would have tore him to pieces with their homemade knives. A mistake was made somewhere, I said. I, 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 I'm confused, and, and I wished to say other things, but the laughter upstairs became too loud and, and moan-like for me, and I tried to break out of it, but I couldn't. Just as I was leaving, I felt an urgent desire to ask her what freedom was and went back. She sat with her head in her hands, moaning softly. Her leather-brown face was filled with sadness. Old woman, what is this freedom you love so well? I asked around a corner of my mind. She looked surprised, then thoughtful, then baffled. I, I, I done forgot, son. It's all mixed up. First I think it's one thing, then I, I think it's another. It gets my head to spinning. I guess now it ain't nothing but knowing how to say what I got up in my head. But it's a hard job, son. Too much has done happened to me in too short a time. It's like I have a fever. Every time I start to walk, my head gets to swirling and I, I falls down. Or, or, or if it ain't that, it's it's the boys. They they gets to laughing and wants to kill up the white folks. They's bitter. That's what they is. But what about freedom? Leave me alone, boy, my head aches. I left her feeling... Dizzy myself, I didn't get far. Suddenly, one of the sons, a big fellow, six feet tall, appeared out of nowhere and struck me with his fist. What's the matter, man? I cried. You made Ma cry. But how? I said, dodging a blow, asking her them questions. That's how. Get out of here and stay. And next time you got questions like that, ask yourself. He held me in a grip like cold stone, his fingers fastening upon my windpipe until I thought I would suffocate before he finally allowed me to go. I stumbled about, dazed, the music beating hysterically in my ears. It was dark, my head cleared, and I wandered down a dark, narrow passage, thinking I heard his footsteps hurrying behind me. I was sore, and, and into my being had come a, a profound craving for tranquility, for peace and quiet, a state I felt I could never achieve. For one thing, the trumpet was blaring and the rhythm was too hectic. A tom-tom beating like heart thuds began drowning out the trumpet, filling my ears. I longed for water. And I heard it. Rushing through the cold mains, my fingers touched as I felt my way. But I couldn't stop to search because of the footsteps behind me. Hey, Ross, I called. Is it you, Destroyer? Reinhardt? No answer. Only the rhythmic footsteps behind me. Once I tried crossing the road, but a speeding machine struck me, scraping the skin from my leg as it roared past. Then, somehow, I came out of it, ascending hastily from this underworld of sound to hear Louis Armstrong innocently asking, what did I do to be so black and blue? At first, I was afraid. This familiar music had demanded action, the kind of which I was incapable, and yet, had I lingered there beneath the surface, I might have attempted to act. Nevertheless, I know now that few really listen to this music. I sat on the chair's edge in a soaking sweat as though each of my 1,369 bulbs had every one become a clique light in an individual setting for a third degree with Ross and Reinhardt in charge. It was exhausting, 
as though I had held my breath continuously for an hour under the terrifying serenity that comes from days of intense hunger. And yet, it was a strangely satisfying experience for an invisible man to hear the silence of sound. I had discovered unrecognized compulsions of my being, even though I could not answer yes to their promptings. <laughs> I haven't smoked a reefer since. However, not because they're illegal, but because to see around corners is enough. That is not unusual when you are invisible, but to hear around them is too much. It inhibits action. And despite Brother Jack and all that sad, lost period of the Brotherhood, I believe in nothing if not in action. Please, a, a, a definition. A hibernation is a covert preparation for a more overt action. Besides, the drug destroys one's sense of time completely. If that happened, I might forget to dodge some bright morning and some clock would run me down with an orange and yellow streetcar or a bilious bus, or I might forget to leave my hole when the moment for action presents itself. Meanwhile, I enjoy my life with the compliments of monopolated light and power. Since you never recognize me, even when in closest contact with me, and since, no doubt, you'll hardly believe that I exist, it won't matter if you know that I tapped a power line leading into the building and ran it into my hole in the ground. Before that, I lived in the darkness into which I was chased. But now I see. I've illuminated the blackness of my invisibility and vice versa. And so, I play the invisible music of my isolation. The last statement doesn't seem just right, does it? But it is. You hear this music simply because music is heard and seldom seen, except by musicians. Could this compulsion to put invisibility down in black and white be thus an urge to make music of invisibility? But I am an orator, a rabble-rouser. Am. I was, and perhaps shall be again, who knows. All sickness is not unto death, neither is invisibility. <laughs> I can hear you say, what a horrible, irresponsible bastard, and you're right, I leap to agree with you. I'm one of the most irresponsible beings that ever lived. Irresponsibility is part of my invisibility. Any way you face it, it is a denial. But to whom can I be responsible, and why should I be, when you refuse to see me? And wait until I reveal how truly irresponsible I am. Responsibility rests upon recognition, and recognition is a form of agreement. Take the man whom I almost killed. Who was responsible for that near murder? I? I don't think so. And I refuse it. I won't buy it. You can't give it to me. He bumped me. He insulted me. Shouldn't he, for his own personal safety, have recognized my hysteria, my danger potential? He, let us say, was lost in a dream world. 
But didn't he control that dream world which, alas, is only too real? And didn't he rule me out of it? And if he had yelled for a policeman, wouldn't I have been taken for the offending one? Yes, yes, yes. Let me agree with you. I was the irresponsible one, for I should have used my knife to protect the higher interests of society. Someday that kind of foolishness will cause us tragic trouble. All dreamers and sleepwalkers must pay the price, and even the invisible victim is responsible for the fate of all. But I shirked that responsibility. I became too snarled in the incompatible notions that buzzed within my brain. I was a coward. But what did I do to be so blue? Bear with me. It goes a long way back, some 20 years. All my life I have been looking for something, and everywhere I turned, someone tried to tell me what it was. I accepted their answers, too, <laughs> though they were often in contradiction and even self-contradictory. I was naive. I was looking for myself and asking everyone except myself questions which I, and only I, could answer. It took me a long time and much painful boomeranging of my expectations to achieve a realization everyone else appears to have been born with, that I am nobody but myself. But first I had to discover that I am an invisible man. And yet I am no freak of nature, nor of history. I was in the cards, other things having been equal or unequal 85 years ago. I'm not ashamed of my grandparents for having been slaves. I am only ashamed of myself for having at one time been ashamed. About 85 years ago, they were told that they were free, united with others of our country in everything pertaining to the common good and in everything social, separate, like the fingers of the hand. And they believed it. They exulted in it. They stayed in their place, worked hard, and brought up my father to do the same. But my grandfather is the one. He was an odd old guy, my grandfather, and I am told I take after him. It was he who caused the trouble. On his deathbed, he called my father to him and said, Son, after I'm gone, I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you, but... Our life is a war, and I have been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country ever since I give up my gun back in the Reconstruction. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction, let them swallow you till they vomit or bust wide open. They thought the old man had gone out of his mind. He had been the meekest of men. The younger children were rushed from the room, the shades were drawn, the flame of the lamp turned so low that it sputtered on the wick like the old man's breathing. Learn it to the young'uns, he whispered fiercely. Then he died. But my folks were more alarmed over his last words than over his dying. It was as though he had not died at all. His words caused so much anxiety. I was warned emphatically to forget what he had said. And indeed, this is the first time it has been mentioned outside the family circle. 
It had a tremendous effect upon me, however. I could never be sure of what he meant. Grandfather had been a quiet old man who never made any trouble, yet on his deathbed he had called himself a traitor and a spy, and he had spoken of his meekness as a dangerous activity. It became a constant puzzle which lay unanswered in the back of my mind. And whenever things went well for me, I remembered my grandfather and felt guilty and uncomfortable. It was as though I was carrying out his advice in spite of myself. And to make it worse, everyone loved me for it. I was praised by the most lily-white men of the town. I was considered an example of desirable conduct, just as my grandfather had been. And what puzzled me was that the old man had defined it as treachery. When I was praised for my conduct, I felt a guilt that in some way I was doing something that was really against the wishes of the white folks, that if they had understood, they would have desired me to act just the opposite, that I should have been sulky and mean, and that that really would have been what they wanted, even though they were fooled and thought they wanted me to act as I did. It made me afraid that someday they would look upon me as a traitor and I would be lost. Still, I was more afraid to act any other way because they didn't like that at all. The old man's words were like a curse. On my graduation day, I delivered an oration in which I showed that humility was the secret, indeed the very essence of progress. Not that I believed this, how could I, remembering my grandfather? I only believed that it worked. It was a great success. Everyone praised me, and I was invited to give the speech at a gathering of the town's leading white citizens. It was a triumph for our whole community. It was in the main ballroom of the leading hotel. When I got there, I discovered that it was on the occasion of a smoker, and I was told that since I was to be there anyway, I might as well take part in the battle royal to be fought by some of my schoolmates as part of the entertainment. The battle royal came first. All of the town's big shots were there, in their tuxedos, wolfing down the buffet foods, drinking beer and whiskey and smoking black cigars. It was a large room with a high ceiling. Chairs were arranged in neat rows around three sides of a portable boxing ring, the fourth side was clear, revealing a gleaming space of polished floor. I had some misgivings over the battle royal, by the way. Not from a distaste for fighting, but because I didn't care too much for the other fellows who were to take part. They were tough guys who seemed to have no grandfather's curse worrying their minds. No one could mistake their toughness. And besides, I suspected that fighting a battle royal might detract from the dignity of my speech. In those pre-invisible days, I visualized myself as a potential Booker T. Washington. But the other fellows didn't care too much for me, either, and there were nine of them. I felt superior to them in my way, and I didn't like the manner in which we were all crowded together into the servants' elevator, nor did they like my being there. In fact, as the warmly lighted floors flashed past the elevator, we had words over the fact that I, by taking part in the fight— had knocked one of their friends out of a night's work. We were led out of the elevator through a rococo hall into an anteroom and told to get into our fighting togs. Each of us was issued a pair of boxing gloves and ushered out into the big mirrored hall. 
which we entered looking cautiously about us and whispering, lest we might accidentally be heard above the noise of the room. It was foggy with cigar smoke, and already the whiskey was taking effect. I was shocked to see some of the most important men of the town quite tipsy. They were all there, bankers, lawyers, judges, doctors, fire chiefs, teachers, merchants, even one of the more fashionable pastors. Something we could not see was going on up front. A clarinet was vibrating sensuously, and the men were standing up and moving eagerly forward. We were a small, tight group clustered together, our bare upper bodies touching and shining with anticipatory sweat, while up front, the big shots were becoming increasingly excited over something we still could not see. Suddenly, I heard the school superintendent, who had told me to come, yell, Bring up the shines, gentlemen! Bring up the little shines! We were rushed up to the front of the ballroom, where it smelled even more strongly of tobacco and whiskey. Then we were pushed into place. I almost wet my pants. A sea of faces, some hostile, some amused, ringed around us, and in the center, facing us, stood a magnificent, blonde, stark, naked. There was dead silence. I felt a blast of cold air chill me. I tried to back away, but they were behind me and around me. Some of the boys stood with lowered heads, trembling. I felt a wave of irrational guilt and fear. My teeth chattered, my skin turned to goose flesh, my knees knocked. Yet I was strongly attracted and looked in spite of myself. Had the price of looking been blindness, I would have looked. The hair was yellow like that of a circus cupidol. The face heavily powdered and rouged as though to form an abstract mask. The eyes hollow and smeared a cool blue, the color of a baboon's butt. I felt a desire to spit upon her as my eyes brushed slowly over her body. Her breasts were firm and round as the domes of East Indian temples, and I stood so close as to see the fine skin texture and beads of pearly perspiration glistening like dew around the pink and erect buds of her nipples. I wanted at one and the same time to run from the room, to sink through the floor or go to her and cover her from my eyes and the eyes of the others with my body, to feel the soft thighs to caress her and destroy her, to love her and murder her, to hide from her, and yet to stroke where below the small American flag tattooed upon her belly, her thighs formed a capital V. I had a notion that of all in the room she saw only me with her impersonal eyes. And then she began to dance a slow, sensuous movement, the smoke of a hundred cigars clinging to her like the thinnest of veils. She seemed like a fair bird girl, girdled in veils, calling to me from the angry surface of some gray and threatening sea. I was transported. Then I became aware of the clarinet playing and the big shots yelling at us. Some threatened us if we looked and others if we did not. On my right, I saw one boy faint, and now a man grabbed a silver pitcher from a table and stepped close as he dashed ice water upon him and stood him up and forced two of us to support him as his head hung and moans issued from his thick, bluish lips. Another boy began to plead to go home. He was the largest of the group, wearing dark red fighting trunks, much too small to conceal the erection which projected from him as though in answer to the insinuating low-registered moaning of the clarinet. 
He tried to hide himself with his boxing gloves. And all the while, the blonde continued dancing, smiling faintly at the big shots who watched her with fascination and faintly smiling at our fear. I noticed a certain merchant who followed her hungrily, his lips loose and drooling. He was a large man who wore diamond studs in a shirt front which swelled with the ample paunch underneath, and each time the blonde swayed her undulating hips, he ran his hand through the thin hair of his bald head, and with his arms upheld, his posture clumsy like that of an intoxicated panda, wound his belly in a slow and obscene grind. This creature was completely hypnotized. The music had quickened. As the dancer flung herself about with a detached expression on her face, the men began reaching out to touch her. I could see their beefy fingers sink into the soft flesh. Some of the others tried to stop them, and she began to move around the floor in graceful circles as they gave chase, slipping and sliding over the polished floor. It was mad. Chairs went crashing, drinks were spilled as they ran laughing and howling after her. They caught her just as she reached a door, raised her from the floor, and tossed her as college boys are tossed at a hazing. And above her red, fixed, smiling lips, I saw the terror and disgust in her eyes, almost like my own terror and that which I saw in some of the other boys. As I watched, they tossed her twice, and her soft breast seemed to flatten against the air, and her legs flung wildly as she spun. Some of the more sober ones helped her to escape. And I started off the floor, heading for the anteroom with the rest of the boys. Some were still crying and in hysteria, but as we tried to leave, we were stopped and ordered to get into the ring. There was nothing to do but what we were told. All ten of us climbed under the ropes and allowed ourselves to be blindfolded with broad bands of white cloth. One of the men seemed to feel a bit sympathetic and tried to cheer us up as we stood with our backs against the ropes. Some of us tried to grin. See that boy over there, one of the men said. I want you to run across at the bell and give it to him right in the belly. If you don't get him, I'm going to get you. I don't like his looks. Each of us was told the same. The blindfolds were put on, yet even then I had been going over my speech. In my mind, each word was as bright as flame. I felt the cloth pressed into place and frowned so that it would be loosened when I relaxed. But now I felt a sudden fit of blind terror. I was unused to darkness. It was as though I had suddenly found myself in a dark room filled with poisonous cottonmouths. I could hear the bleary voices yelling insistently for the battle royal to begin. Get going in there! Let me at that big nigger! I strained to pick up the school superintendent's voice, as though to squeeze some security out of that slightly more familiar sound. Let me at those black sons of bitches, someone yelled. No, Jackson, no, another voice yelled. Here's somebody, help me hold Jack. I want to get at that ginger-colored nigger. Tear him limb from limb, the first voice yelled. I stood against the ropes, trembling, for in those days I was what they called ginger-colored, and he sounded as though he might crunch me between his teeth like a crisp ginger cookie. Quite a struggle was going on. Chairs were being kicked about, and I could hear voices grunting as with a terrific effort. I wanted to see, to see more desperately than ever before. But the blindfold was tight as a thick skin puckering scab, and when I raised my gloved hands to push the layers of white aside, a voice yelled, Oh, no, you don't, black bastard. Leave that alone. 
Ring the bell before Jackson kills him, a coon, someone boomed in the sudden silence. And I heard the bell clang and the sound of the feet scuffling forward. A glove smacked against my head. I pivoted, striking out stiffly as someone went past and felt the jar ripple along the length of my arm to my shoulder. Then it seemed as though all nine of the boys had turned upon me at once. Blows pounded me from all sides while I struck out as best I could. So many blows landed upon me that I wondered if I were not the only blindfolded fighter in the ring, or if the man called Jackson hadn't succeeded in getting me after all. Blindfolded, I could no longer control my motions. I had no dignity. I stumbled about like a baby or a drunken man. The smoke had become thicker, and with each new blow it seemed to sear and further restrict my lungs. My saliva became like hot, bitter glue. A glove connected with my head, filling my mouth with warm blood. It was everywhere. I could not tell if the moisture I felt upon my body was sweat or blood. A blow landed hard against the nape of my neck. I felt myself going over, my head hitting the floor. Streaks of blue light filled the black world behind the blindfold. I lay prone, pretending I was knocked out, but felt myself seized by hands and yanked to my feet. Get going, black boy, mix it up. My arms were like lead, my head smarting from blows. I managed to feel my way to the ropes and held on, trying to catch my breath. A glove landed in my midsection, and I went over again, feeling as though the smoke had become a knife jabbed into my guts, pushed this way and that by the legs milling around me, I finally pulled erect and discovered that I could see the black, sweat-washed forms weaving in the smoky blue atmosphere like drunken dancers weaving to the rapid drum-like thuds of blows. Everyone fought hysterically. It was complete anarchy. Everybody fought everybody else. No group fought together for long. Two, three, four fought one, then turned to fight each other, were themselves attacked. Blows landed below the belt and in the kidney, with the gloves open as well as closed, and with my eye partly open now, there was not so much terror. I moved carefully, avoiding blows, although not too many to attract attention, fighting from group to group. The boys groped about like blind, cautious crabs crouching to protect their midsections, their heads pulled in short against their shoulders, their arms stretched nervously before them with their fists testing the smoke-filled air like the knobbed feelers of hypersensitive snails. In one corner, I glimpsed a boy violently punching the air and heard him scream in pain as he smashed his hand against the ring post. For a second, I saw him bent over, holding his hand, then going down as a blow caught his unprotected head. I played one group against the other, slipping in and throwing a punch, then stepping out of range while pushing the others into the melee to take the blows blindly aimed at me. The smoke was agonizing, and there were no rounds, no bells at three-minute intervals to relieve our exhaustion. The room spun around me, a swirl of light, smoke, sweating bodies surrounded by tense white faces. I bled from both nose and mouth, the blood spattering upon my chest. The men kept yelling, Slug him, black boy, knock his guts out! Uppercut him! Kill him! Kill that big boy! Taking a fake fall, I saw a boy going down heavily beside me as though we were felled by a single blow. So a sneaker-clad foot shoot into his groin as the two who had knocked him down stumbled upon him. I rolled out of range, feeling a twinge of nausea. The harder we fought, the more threatening the men became. And yet, I had begun to worry about my speech again. How would it go? Would they recognize my ability? What would they give me? I was fighting automatically when suddenly I noticed that one after another of the boys was leaving the ring. I was surprised, filled with panic, as though I had been left alone with an unknown danger. Then I understood. The boys had arranged it among themselves. It was the custom for the two men left in the ring to slug it out for the winner's prize. 
I discovered this too late. When the bell sounded, two men in tuxedos leaped into the ring and removed the blindfold. I found myself facing Tadlock, the biggest of the gang. I felt sick at my stomach. Hardly had the bell stopped ringing in my ears than it clanged again and I saw him moving swiftly toward me. Thinking of nothing else to do, I hit him smash on the nose. He kept coming, bringing the rank-sharp violence of stale sweat. His face was a black blank of a face, only his eyes alive, with hate of me and a glow with a feverish terror from what had happened to us all. I became anxious. I wanted to deliver my speech, and he came at me as though he meant to beat it out of me. I smashed him again and again, taking his blows as they came. Then, on a sudden impulse, I struck him lightly, and as we clinched, I whispered, Fake like I knocked you out. You can have the prize. I'll break your behind, he whispered hoarsely. For them? For me, son of a bitch. They were yelling for us to break it up, and Tatlock spun me half around with a blow, and as a joggled camera sweeps in a reeling scene, I saw the howling red faces crouching, tense, beneath a cloud of blue-gray smoke. For a moment the world wavered, unraveled, flowed, then my head cleared and Tatlock bounced before me. That fluttering shadow before my eyes was his jabbing left hand. Then falling forward, my head against his damp shoulder, I whispered, I'll make it five dollars more, go to hell! but his muscles relaxed a trifle beneath my pressure, and I breathed, Seven, give it to your ma, he said, ripping me beneath the heart. And while I still held him, I butted him and moved away. I felt myself bombarded with punches. I fought back with hopeless desperation. I wanted to deliver my speech more than anything else in the world, because I felt that only these men could judge truly my ability. And now this stupid clown was ruining my chances. I began fighting carefully now, moving in to punch him and out again with my greater speed. A lucky blow to his chin, and I had him going, too, until I heard a loud voice yell, I got my money on the big boy! Hearing this, I almost dropped my guard. I, I was confused. Should I try to win against the voice out there? Would not this go against my speech? And was not this a, a moment for humility, for non-resistance? A blow to my head as I danced about sent my right eye popping like a jack-in-the-box and settled my dilemma. The room went red as I fell. It was a dream fall, my body languid and fastidious as to where to land until the floor became impatient and smashed up to meet me. A moment later I came to. An hypnotic voice said, Five! emphatically, and I lay there hazily watching a dark red spot of my own blood shaping itself into a butterfly, glistening and soaking into the soiled gray world of the canvas. When the voice drawled, Ten! I was lifted up and dragged to a chair. I sat, dazed. My eye pained and swelled with each throb of my pounding heart, and I wondered if now I would be allowed to speak. I was wringing wet, my mouth still bleeding, we were grouped along the wall now. The other boys ignored me as they congratulated Tatlock and speculated as to how much they would be paid. One boy whimpered over his smashed hand. Looking up front, I saw attendants in white jackets rolling the portable ring away and placing a small square rug in the vacant space surrounded by chairs. Perhaps, I thought, I will stand on the rug to deliver my speech. Then the MC called to us. Come on up here, boys, and get your money. We ran forward to where the men laughed and talked in their chairs, waiting. Everyone seemed friendly now. There it is, on the rug, the man said. I saw the rug covered with coins of all dimensions, 
and a few crumpled bills. But what excited me, scattered here and there, were the gold pieces. Boys, it's all yours, the man said. You get all you grab. That's right, Sambo, a blonde man said, winking at me confidentially. I trembled with excitement, forgetting my pain. I would get the gold and the bills, I thought. I would use both hands. I would throw my body against the boys nearest to me to block them from the gold. Get down around the rug now, the man commanded, and don't anyone touch it until I give the signal. This ought to be good, I heard. As told, we got around the square rug on our knees. Slowly, the man raised his freckled hand as we followed it upward with our eyes. I heard, these niggas look like they're about to pray. Then, ready, the man said, go. I lunged for a yellow coin lying on the blue design of the carpet, touching it and sending a surprised shriek to join those rising around me. I tried frantically to remove my hand but could not let go. A hot, violent force tore through my body, shaking me like a wet rat. The rug was electrified. The hair bristled up on my head as I shook myself free. My muscles jumped, my nerves jangled, writhed. But I saw that this was not stopping the other boys, laughing in fear and embarrassment. Some were holding back and scooping up the coins knocked off by the painful contortions of the others. The men roared above us as we struggled. Pick it up, goddammit, pick it up, someone called like a bass-voiced parrot. Go on, get it. I crawled rapidly around the floor, picking up the coins, trying to avoid the coppers and to get greenbacks and the gold. Ignoring the shock by laughing as I brushed the coins off quickly, I discovered that I could contain the electricity, a contradiction, but it works. Then the men began to push us onto the rug, Laughing embarrassedly, we struggled out of their hands and kept after the coins. We were all wet and slippery and hard to hold. Suddenly I saw a boy lifted into the air, glistening with sweat like a circus seal, and dropped his wet back, landing flush upon the charged rug, heard him yell and saw him literally dance upon his back, his elbows beating a frenzied tattoo upon the floor, his muscles twitching like the flesh of a horse stung by many flies. When he finally rolled off, his face was gray, and no one stopped him when he ran from the floor amid booming laughter. Get the money, the MC called. That's good, hard American cash. And we snatched and grabbed, snatched and grabbed. I was careful not to come too close to the rug now. And when I felt the hot whiskey breath descend upon me like a cloud of foul air, I reached out and grabbed the leg of a chair. It was occupied, and I held on desperately. Let go, nigga, let go! The huge face wavered down to mine as he tried to push me free, but my body was slippery, and he was too drunk. It was Mr. Coldcord who owned a chain of movie houses and entertainment palaces. Each time he grabbed me, I slipped out of his hands. It became a real struggle. I feared the rug more than I did the drunk, so I held on, surprising myself for a moment by trying to topple him upon the rug. It was such an enormous idea that I found myself actually carrying it out. I tried not to be obvious, yet when I grabbed his leg, trying to tumble him out of the chair, he raised up, roaring with laughter, and, looking at me with soberness dead in the eye, kicked me viciously in the chest. The chair leg flew out of my hand, and I felt myself going and rolled. It was as though I had rolled through a bed of hot coals. It seemed a whole century would pass before I would roll free, a century in which I was seared through the deepest levels of my body to the fearful breath within me, and the breath seared and heated to the point of explosion. It'll all be over in a flash, I thought as I rolled clear. It'll all be over in a flash.
but not yet. The men on the other side were waiting, red faces swollen as though from apoplexy as they bent forward in their chairs. Seeing their fingers coming toward me, I rolled away as a fumbled football rolls off the receiver's fingertips back into the coals. That time I luckily sent the rug sliding out of place and heard the coins ringing against the floor and the boys scuffling to pick them up and the MC calling, All right, boys, asshole, go get dressed and, and get your money. I was limp as a dishrag. My back felt as though it had been beaten with wires. When we had dressed, the MC came in and gave us each five dollars, except Tadlock, who got ten for being last in the ring. Then he told us to leave. I was not to get a chance to deliver my speech, I thought. I was going out into the dim alley in despair when I was stopped and told to go back. I returned to the ballroom where the men were pushing back their chairs and gathering in groups to talk. The MC knocked on the table for quiet. Gentlemen, he said, we almost forgot an important part of the program. A most serious part, gentlemen. This boy was brought here to deliver a speech which he made at his graduation yesterday. Bravo! I'm told that he is the smartest boy we've got out there in Greenwood. I'm told that he knows more big words than a pocket-sized dictionary. Much applause and laughter. So now, gentlemen, I want you to give him your attention. There was still laughter as I faced them, my mouth dry, my eye throbbing. I began slowly, but evidently my throat was tense because they began shouting, Louder! Louder! We of the younger generation extol the wisdom of the great leader and educator, I shouted, who first spoke these flaming words of wisdom. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal. Water, water, we die of thirst. The answer from the friendly vessel came back. Cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distressed vessel, at last heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket, and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. And like him, I say, and in his words, to those of my race who depend upon bettering their condition in a foreign land, or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the southern white man who is his next-door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends in every manly way of the people of all races by whom we are surrounded. I spoke automatically and with such fervor that I did not realize that the men were still talking and laughing until my dry mouth, filling up with blood from the cut, almost strangled me. I coughed, wanting to stop and go to one of the tall, brass, sand-filled spittoons to relieve myself, but a few of the men, especially the superintendent, were listening, and I was afraid. So I gulped it down, blood, saliva, and all, and continued. What powers of endurance I had during those days. What enthusiasm, what a... Belief in the rightness of things. I spoke even louder in spite of the pain, but still they talked, and still they laughed as though deaf with cotton in dirty ears, so I spoke with greater emotional emphasis. I closed my ears and swallowed blood until I was nauseated. 
The speech seemed a hundred times as long as before, but I could not leave out a single word. All had to be said, each memorized, nuanced, considered, rendered. Nor was that all. Whenever I uttered a word of three or more syllables, a group of voices would yell for me to repeat it. I used the phrase social responsibility, and they yelled, What's that word you say, boy? Social responsibility, I said. What? Social louder responsibility. More responsibility. The room filled with the uproar of laughter until, no doubt, distracted by having to gulp down my blood, I made a mistake and yelled a phrase I had often seen denounced in newspaper editorials, heard debated in private. Social what? They yelled equality. The laughter hung smoke-like in the sudden stillness. I opened my eyes, puzzled. Sounds of displeasure filled the room. The MC rushed forward. They shouted hostile phrases at me, but I did not understand. A small, dry-mustached man in the front row blared out, Say that slowly, son. What, sir? What you just said. Social responsibility, sir, I said. You weren't being smart, were you, boy? He said, not unkindly. No, sir. You sure that about equality was a mistake? Oh, yes, sir, I said. I, I, I was swallowing blood. Well, you had better speak more slowly so we can understand. We mean to do right by you, but you've got to know your place at all times. All right, now, go on with your speech. I was afraid. I wanted to leave, but I wanted also to speak, and I was afraid they'd snatch me down. Uh, thank you, sir, I said, beginning where I had left off and having them ignore me as before. Yet when I finished, there was a thunderous applause. I was surprised to see the superintendent come forth with a package wrapped in white tissue paper and, gesturing for quiet, address the men. Gentlemen, you see that I did not overpraise this boy. He makes a good speech, and someday he'll lead his people in the proper paths. And I don't have to tell you that that is important in these days and times. This is a good, smart boy and so to encourage him in the right direction. In the name of the Board of Education, I wish to present him a prize in the form of this, he paused, removing the tissue paper and revealing a gleaming calfskin briefcase, in the form of this first-class article from Shad Whitmore Shop. Boy, he said, addressing me, take this prize and keep it well. Consider it a badge of office. Prize it. Keep developing as you are, and someday it will be filled with important papers that will help shape the destiny of your people. I was so moved that I could hardly express my thanks. A rope of bloody saliva forming a shape like an undiscovered continent drooled upon the leather, and I wiped it quickly away. I felt an importance that I had never dreamed. Open it. And see what's inside, I was told. My fingers a tremble, I complied, smelling the fresh leather and finding an official-looking document inside. It was a scholarship to the State College for Negroes. My eyes filled with tears, and I, I ran awkwardly off the floor. I was overjoyed. I did not even mind when I discovered that the gold pieces I had scrambled for were brass 
pocket tokens advertising a certain make of automobile. When I reached home, everyone was excited. Next day, the neighbors came to congratulate me. I even felt safe from grandfather, whose deathbed curse usually spoiled my triumphs. I stood beneath his photograph with my briefcase in hand and smiled triumphantly into his stolid black peasant's face. It was a face that fascinated me. The eyes seemed to follow everywhere I went. That night, I dreamed I was at a circus with him and, and that he refused to laugh at the clowns no matter what they did. Then later he told me to open my briefcase and read what was inside, and I did, finding an official envelope stamped with the state seal. And inside the envelope I found another and another endlessly, and I thought I would fall of weariness. Them's years, he said. Now open that one. And I did. And in it I found an engraved document containing a short message in letters of gold. Read it, my grandfather said, out loud. To whom it may concern, I intoned, keep this nigger boy running. I awoke with the old man's laughter ringing in my ears. It was a dream I was to remember and dream again for many years after. But at that time I had no insight into its meaning. First, I had to attend college context of white supremacy that is the first audio segment ralph ellison's invisible man we will be picking up we are on chapter two chapter two um we pick up as i said serious about the deal if folks are listening and you feel like man i have just listened to uh, we feel like we got an extra week of the hate you give. If you're not enjoying the text, don't think it's constructive. Cannot believe we would sit through two months or even a little more uh, of this. Then just make that known. 641-715-3640. The code 564943 pound i said i'm more than happy if we do not get unanimous decision that hey this is the book to do then i'm more than willing we can select another book i wouldn't say i'd be happy uh to pick another book but i'd be more than willing to pick another book uh because this is one of my favorites uh listening today still great at least in my view but anxious to hear if folks have thoughts questions uh to report on the i guess prologue in chapter one that we heard again the number six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you want to join the discussion but you don't want to use your phone you can use the free vote line it is linked at black talk radio network if you need the address it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one. When you put in that address, look on the left of the page, you'll see the free vote line. 
click it, it will open a small window on your screen. The top line is a drop down menu. Select the number I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live broadcast you should be able to hear the live program and it's the same procedure if you would like to participate press star six one uh, you'll see the dial pad on your screen once you do that i will see your hand on the switchboard and we will get you on the line uh, folks who dialed in, if you have commentary on the first portion of the audio segment, or if, again, we have folks, man, Gus, this is the worst book in the history of the world. I cannot believe that you even thought of choosing this for the cows. You can make that known as well. But if you dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Thomas in New York. Oh, good evening, Gus. Oh, nice and good. Very well written uh, metaphors, similes, uh, the flow, uh, details. Very, very well written. Um, I mean, I feel like it, it's not fiction um, so far. And um, just the story itself. I mean, wow. Um, blindfold them, throw them in the ring. You know, let them beat each other's brains out. Throw them on a rug. Throw some coins down there. Let them call around for them like dogs and did pay them, you know. Then you get to give your speech and <laughs> once you said equality, <laughs> crickets. Uh, I mean that that was a uh, I mean that was so far this week one has been better um <laughs> than all the eight weeks that we did that other book um by far. And um we only on week one. It sounds authentic. Authenticity is important, absolutely. Uh, other folks who dialed in, appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, including if you think this is the worst book ever, you can make that known. Uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Yes, ma'am, proceed. Yes, sir. Yes, greetings uh, to the host and to the listeners. Wow, I'm going to say something that sounds really might sound ignorant, but I didn't even know black people wrote like that. I, I didn't even know black people could use the English language in that way so beautifully. And I know that sounds probably really ignorant, but wow, that was, that was pretty intense. And I, I'm not a, a, I'm not a intense um, five book a month reader. I, I do maybe read a couple books a month. Most of them are, are nonfiction. Um, this book, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, was referenced in a um, Amos Wilson lecture a couple weeks ago I listened to, as well as several times I've heard it mentioned on this program now, um, The Invisible Man. So I, I was just actually randomly scrolling um, through Facebook and saw the announcement for your program uh, today, which is, you know, I'm, I'm and um, and so I immediately said, "Hey, I'm I'm definitely on that book. I gotta 
I got to get back on my um, back on the uh, the Cal's book club for this one because I'm not going to miss this and the discussion around it. I almost feel like um, because I remember I you know the host made mention on several programs this was in his top five and all the other books that you had in your top five. I think I've read three of them now, three or maybe four of them. Yeah, three, at least three of them. Um, and incredible. Wow. I think I, I might have, if I'm not, I might be mistaken, but I think Urugu was in there. Um, and I think you might have said medical apartheid. Um, and this seems to be another one of those books that is going to, uh, I think, reveal a lot. Uh, and, I, and I hear it's fiction. I, I mean, I think we've been told it's fiction. And I don't really read fiction books a lot, but I'm very much looking forward to this story um, being told because as the previous caller stated, I feel like it's going to be very authentic to the, to the dynamics of the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, yeah, but just the, just the his use of the English language, I'm you know, no fan of white people's languages, but I believe that, wow, he is master. Ralph Ellison is, <laughs> it, it looks like he was named after his father named his parents named him after the poet is, is what I've read, but I, I'm very much looking forward to the rest of this book and um, and to this series. So I want to thank um, thank the, the host for for bringing this back up again. I'll take my call off one. Glad you enjoyed it uh, and glad to hear that because I'm not a fiction reader either. I've made that clear. I think if you look at the books that we've read on the book club over the years, even though I don't always pick the books, there's not a whole lot of fiction that's you know reflected in what we read here. But man, this one, outstanding and authentic and that I especially appreciate because uh, there are so many black writers who are just geniuses. Uh, Tony Morrison, The Bluest Eyes, also in my top five. That is also fiction. And I mean, it's extraordinary. It's one of the first books that we uh, read. But just a lot of times, just like everything else, black people that are talented and particularly black writers that are talented in trying to speak authentically, accurately about racism, even in the format of fiction, it can be very difficult for them to get the type of well, what we got, you know, last week, uh, The Hate You Give, 60 weeks on the New York Times, you know, top 10. Other folks that uh, have commentary, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Proceed. Sorry. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. <clears throat> all right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, interesting book. Uh, never had a chance to read it uh, before, but... Uh, very interesting book here. Lots of uh, metaphors uh, in the book. Uh, while it was a little confusing to, well, I, I, I got home uh, about the second half of the reading and uh, was able to catch up with it, but uh, just kind of, it was kind of a little confusing uh, in where the storyline was at. But I, I, I caught a couple of things that, that really, uh, that I kind of paid attention to. Uh, the one in regards to uh, his grandfather, um, when he told him that uh, he wanted him to keep up the good fight, and he never told him that uh, that he was a spy or a traitor. And what was interesting is, you know how we, uh, you know, like when we try to uh, uh, degrade you know, black folks, uh, you know, anti-black behavior, calling them coons and everything like that. It's, uh, it's interesting because, uh, 
I guess the way he's portraying in the story is he's been a part of that. And I guess he realizes that uh, he's been a part of that anti-black behavior uh, that we unconsciously kind of participate in. So uh, I thought about that when, uh, when, uh, when that came up and also too, when uh, uh, during the battle Royal kind of reminds me of, you know, dog fighting, you know, white people just dog fighting, you know, black folks and, you know, just, the inhumanity that white folks uh, does to, and these these are prospective, you know, graduates from high school, which, you know, back in the 50s, you know, graduated from high school was a, was a big thing. So, you know, they're already trying to psychologically, you know, uh, damage them, you know, and also kind of like similar to what sports is now, you know, a bunch of black, you know, black athletes, you know, fighting, playing ball with each other and, you know, old white men just collecting the check and, you know, watching, you know, everybody beat each other up. So, but, um, interesting book. So, uh, I will, uh, continue to read it. And, uh, that's all I have under my life. Appreciate that, sir. Uh, if we have folks we have not heard from, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary, you want to add line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, ma'am. Your volume is a little low. If you could speak up, that would be good. Sure. Uh, is this better? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Hi, this is um, the software developer from Wisconsin. Uh, good evening to all on the line, and good evening, Gus. Um, I am very grateful that you're reading this book. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. Um, I I really appreciate I, I really appreciate that first chapter in a different way than when I read it the first time. When I, re- when I read this book, well, the first time I read this book, I was a great deal more confused. And so um, I didn't see it in the way that I saw it now, which is, sorry, which is actually he is more confused about racism. And so, you know, he doesn't see that, you know, he's still thinking, um, you know, well, I just have to give this speech. If I can just give this speech and prove to these men, you know, how great I am, you know, um, maybe I won't eat, maybe I won't be mistreated. Maybe I won't be uh, treated unfairly. Um, so I'm, I have the paperback on uh, page 25 in the paperback. I don't know what everybody's reading, but um he, he's uh, fighting the last kid standing, and he says, I wanted to deliver my speech more than anything else in the world because I felt that only these men could judge truly my ability, and now this stupid clown was ruining my chances. And that's how we perceive other black people um, in the, you know, when we're around white people. You know, we're trying to impress white people. We're trying to show white people how great we can be and we're blaming black people for the things that white people are doing to us. So, um, again, I'm very grateful for this. I, I heard your uh, discussion with Dr. Kevorkian, um on YouTube, and I, I wish I would have been listening to you then so I could have participated in that discussion. So, awesome book. I'm glad you picked it, and please keep reading it. With that, I'll mute my line. Yes, ma'am. Did hear that word unfair on the cows. Yikes. That's in the word guide, Pia, Mr. Fuller's suggestion. Uh, but appreciate the commentary. What was your 
Uh, our caller in Wisconsin, you said uh, that when you read this book, I guess the first time around, uh, it's been some time that you had a different perspective on the first portion, like the prologue and the uh, first chapter, I guess, when he's giving his speech at the school. What was your perception the first time around? Um, the first time around, I actually thought it was a bit extreme. You know, I thought, I thought, oh, white people don't really do this. But they do, right? They make us perform all the time for a little bit of nothing, you know. So I, I, I thought it was a little bit extreme, and I, and I actually thought that the book was extreme the entire time I was reading it. I felt like, um, I felt like he was speaking to me, and he was speaking about me, just like I'm pretty sure. And I heard you say this on on the program you did with Dr. Kevorkian that it was like an autobiography of Gus T. Renegade. Um, so I, I thought I thought that I could see myself in this in the unnamed protagonist, but um, at the same time I thought he was being a little too extreme. I, I just thought, oh, this is just so far fetched. No white people do this, but they do, right? They they have us doing this all the time. It may not be the battle royale, and, and this is actually historical fact. They did this, right? But it it it's you know they're always placing us in conflict with other black people they're always you know telling us to harm other black people and if we do this we'll just get a little bit of crumbs and we'll be happy enough to do that you know you spoke about sheriff clark last night Kanye west you know the same sort of thing it's it, it's repetitive you know it's amazing how you could read a book written 70 years ago and it would still be relevant today and i apologize for the word fair i do try not to say that word as well because I know that uh, it's actually uh, not the best way of saying. I, I think just maybe better correctly, maybe better. So uh, I'll apologize for that. I'll mute my line. No apologies needed. We're all still learning and working on our code, practicing our codification. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary, on the first portion of the reading. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hey, everybody. It's Carla here from the 712, loving the way in on the Invisible Man reading. When I heard Gus say that uh, years ago, that was his number one book. I got an app, and I I was working at a job, and I was able to listen to a lot of audio books. So I got Invisible Man in, like, <laughs> a good eight or nine times. That is, is, is such a good book. It really is. And... Since I'm reading it and with you all, I was kind of um, confused about, uh, that's why I have to read it so many times because there's still some parts that kind of kind of get me. Like, I don't know if he was um, in a dream state or was when that, when he smoked the marijuana reefer, when he was thinking of the, the uh, black lady that was, um, you know, a rape victim of a white person and she had sons and um, she said that she was sad that he died and he was supposed to free us, but he just couldn't see himself to do it. I didn't understand if that, if he went into a dream part and, um, but you can clear it up. And um, I just thought it is a good book and I could go on and on, but the the part when he said that he got that, um, that, that damn briefcase, I said, uh, and then he said, I was so happy about it that I got the, the uh, briefcase that was sheepskin, and it, I believe it was white. And then he says, um, when I got home and found out that they was throwing 
um, automobile test coins or whatever. I wasn't even mad that it wasn't real money because I had got that briefcase and I had I had got a scholarship to university. So, yeah, we um, Ralph Ellison is a literary genius. I read Juneteenth, but I'll mute my line and keep listening. Thank you for letting me share. Indeed. Uh, other people can weigh in since we got a question asked about the <clears throat> the first portion where the character who is not named, right, Invisible Man, the unnamed uh, character, protagonist, well, when he has this discussion with this enslaved Black uh, female and is asking her, you know, what is freedom about and why are you crying? And she's telling him, as Caller just stated, I think that is, uh, I mean, you could put a hyphen in it, right? Dream state hyphen his piece tie he got this reefer that he said the guy slipped him uh so i think you can just put all that as a dream state where he's having this imagined conversation dialogue or what have you he because it because it starts right they're doing the whole uh sermon thing you know black is and it ain't hallelujah and all that and then it goes from that he, he goes to have this uh discussion and it starts from the music listening to louis armstrong so i think all of that is uh kind of a dream sequence but I could be in error. Other folks can feel free to answer that one as well. Uh, other folks, if we missed you completely, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard, Gus? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, yeah, I think uh, we should keep reading this book. Am I being heard okay, Gus? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, this this book is uh, well written. You know, it's a lot of anti-blackness in it. You know, but it it, it does uh, focus on like uh, you know white people are more to blame for the problems that we're going through, and it does so far it seems like it's heading on the right track as far as that's concerned. And uh, whereas you know the last book didn't really point in that direction, like you know white people are most to blame. And I see what you mean by it. there's a lot of colors in in this text here. You know, it, it's it's pretty graphic. You know, with blood and and I think there was a line in there where you said that truth is light and light is truth. And that seems like a lot of white identification there, you know. But I guess that's to be expected, you know, if you're young and you're confused about the system. So, um, and, you know, I can see why white people might like this book. I mean, you know, he's mugging people and in the first page of the book, he's mugging a white guy and, and um, and he's still an electric, you know. <laughs> he's got thirteen hundred lights, you know, in his hole in the ground. So he's still an electric. He's mugging people. He's smoking weed. So I see why a lot of white people would like this. But uh, but I'm gonna stop right there, Gus, and I'll mute my line. But I think we should keep reading this book. I think it'll be constructive. And thanks. Yes, sir. Appreciate that. <clears throat> that's definitely something to keep in mind as we proceed. If we continue reading this one, uh, why do whites like this book and have for many, many years now? Uh, any other folks that we missed completely who have a hand up? We got everybody who has a hand up so far. Grand, I'll share uh, some of my notes, and then we'll see if other folks have uh, commentary. Uh, if you if you have comments that you want to get in before we get to the second audio segment, uh, 
don't dally. Uh, you have about 15 minutes or so, uh, and then you can go ahead and get your hand up in the next 15 if you have a comment that you know you want to get in. Uh, some of the notes that I took, uh, you get counterviolence right in the beginning with this book, and I'm not sure that that stood out to me in some of the previous readings of the text, but when I say counterviolence, like right from the very beginning, I call her, when he talks about that mugging with the blonde guy who he says uh, bumped him and insulted him and then he headbutts him and, you know, was going to pull out his razor and kill him. Uh, but to have that right from the beginning and then he goes back to that after he tells us about that, he goes back to that incident, incident and says when he's talking about being irresponsible and saying, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm responsible for that. He bumped me. He insulted me. Uh, and further, in fact, I'll read exactly what he says. He says, uh, let me agree with you. I, I was the irresponsible one for I should have used my knife to protect the higher interests of society. Someday that kind of foolishness will cause us tragic trouble. I interpreted that as that type of foolishness being him not being responsible and killing this white man. Uh, then you have the scene with uh, this, this dream sequence. That's what I think it is when he's had his reefer uh, and liquor, I think as well. Uh, and he's talking to this enslaved black female and she's moaning and they're talking about freedom. And she says that she loves her white enslaver rapist uh, because she got her children, but she goes back and forth and he didn't free us and her children want to kill him and they're bitter. And that's all they talk about is wanting to kill white folks. And so she poisons him and watches him wither away but she seems ambivalent or he uses the word ambivalent and she gets confused but I mean right there where you've got other black people that are talking about killing white people and she's talking or she has killed him <laughs> she's talking about it and she has killed him in her way just to avoid him being killed in a different way and then he comes back later on and it says yeah I should have killed that white man too that's just in my opinion that is a lot of counter violence like immediately like all of that is in the prologue that's not even in uh chapter one i don't think most books written by black people are coming with that much counter violence directed at whites immediately or much less in the totality of the book much less in the first like 10 15 pages um i thought it was interesting right at the beginning too he says i might even be said to uh possess a mind not I do possess a mind, but I might even, like even that is questioned, which is what the system of white supremacy does with Negro intellect. Um, let's see. From chapter, uh, from the first chapter, or even before I get to the first chapter, all of what he explains about how he comes to get to this point in life where he's willing to kill this white man for bumping him on the street and he's stealing electricity and uh, is trespassing as well. If he's staying in this building where he's not supposed to be, where they only rent to white people like this is a scoundrel of sorts. I don't even know what uh, definitely not respectability politics, uh, this character and him kind of explaining how he got to this point in life, the way that I view it as, as he became less confused about white supremacy racism 
he began to feel less inclined to be respectable. Like he did not feel compelled to have to pay electricity or to pay his rent or all the other things that you are supposed to do. Uh, if you think, oh, this is a just system, I'm going to, you know, do things correctly. Once he begins to understand that that is not what the system of white supremacy is about, he dramatically adjusts his own behaviors. Very important, I think. Uh, let's see. I definitely want to hear what people have to say about Granddad's uh, commentary, his haunting advice, because Granddad, even though he's beginning of the book, he's dead, but he becomes a really important person and, and what he says and these dreams that he has going back to Granddad, laugh at him. Do want to hear people's thoughts on that. Let's see. Chapter one. Uh, things that I got from there. Yeah, everything in, in this, in, in Granddad's speech on his deathbed, I think huge importance for the entirety of the book in terms of what we, how you interpret that. How does he interpret that at this point since he seems so haunted and the whole household uh, is so shook up. I think he says that they were even more disturbed about his commentary than about him actually dying. Uh, and I guess for folks who, if they came in late, he actually says on his deathbed, I uh, called my father to him and said, son, after I'm gone, I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you, but our life is a war and I have been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country ever since I gave up my gun back in the reconstruction. Live your live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome them with yeses to death with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction. Let them swallow you till they vomit or burst wide open. They thought the old man had gone out of his mind. He had been meek. He had been the meekest of men. The younger children were rushed from the room, the shades drawn and the flame on the lamp turned so low that it sputtered on the wick like the old man's breathing. Learn it to the youngins. He whispered fiercely and then he died. Wow. <laughs> and that might be counter uh, counter violence, too, because it seems within all of this, the aim is to burst them wide open. That is sounding like counter violence against white people. Very curious as to what people make of this passage. And this might even be one to revisit as we move through the text. Uh, I thought, wow, the whole scene with the battle royal, appreciate uh, the call in Wisconsin's commentary about saying that, you know, her perspective changed on this and thinking that this was extreme. Uh, I, I think even uh, Quentin Tarantino, who's now fallen out of favor, I think he referenced this when he was talking about his monstrosity of a project Django Unchained to say, oh, yeah, this sort of thing is very real. And in fact, we don't even have to go back that far. There were just reports about what was happening uh, in greater confinement where guards were getting black inmates and making them do uh, all these warrior gladiator contests in greater. This is like right now, 2016, 2017, same type of thing. So the battle royal uh, continues and is very real in the system of white supremacy where whites construct all sorts of means for black people to be in conflict with each other for their pornographic amusement. Uh, let's see, the Welsing moments abounded in that scene, the smoking of uh, black cigars and uh, all of that, again, reminding me of another book from my top 10, Delectable Negro, the late Vincent Woodard. I didn't even interpret that scene as them having the white woman there for their sexual interests. I interpreted that as they 
the uh, the coons, the sambos, the negras. That was their sexual interest. These young black boys, the homo. Let me give the full title again. Sorry about that. It is Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro, Homoeroticism and Human Consumption in U.S. Slave Culture. Full title. So, yeah, I thought that that whole scene, the homoeroticism uh, of that They're not even interested in the white woman. If anything, have the white woman there to arouse these young black boys. And that will further our enjoyment, watching them respond to her. And then we boot her out so we can just salivate over you all beating you. I mean, just uh, the sadomasochism of all of that. That is whites every day, all day long. That's Jerry Sandusky, Jimmy Savile over and over and over in the system of white supremacy. Um, I thought too. Uh, I remembered Mr. Fuller, the line where he says uh, our our nameless uh, main character here, where he's upset about this. He's mad because he's come in and the the other black children that he's fighting against, they're mad, too, because they're like, oh, man, you knocked out one of our friends. He could have got a chance to make get a little extra coin bread. He's upset because he thinks he's superior to them. I wrote that down. Uh, He's he thinks he's superior to them. And I didn't like the manner in which we were all crammed together in the servant's elevator. That's what he writes as though he's better than I'm not like them. Remember, Dr. Welsing, she used to talk about that line from O.J. Simpson where he said he thought he was special. There's O.J. Simpson and some niggers. He heard overheard a white person say like, oh, I'm special. I'm not like them. No, no, no. Racists, they remind us all the time. And so many of us, when we are confused about racism, white supremacy, think we are special because we have money or we have a certain amount of education, degrees, whatever it is, you're mistaken. We are mistaken. Uh, The portion, I just thought symbolic. I mean, you talk about a metaphor. I thought that is a metaphor for the system of white supremacy right there in terms of whom is confused about what racism is and how it works where you have black children blindfolded fighting each other in a ring for white spectators, white racist, old white men spectators. Like that is quite a metaphor for what frequently happens where we are not, we're not even in the ring with the possibility of striking a white person. We are always, always the only people we are around to lash out at, strike at are black people. And they're not even, uh, they're not even seeing, talk about understanding. They're not even seeing uh, just, yeah, I thought that was huge metaphor, very symbolic for our confusion in the system of white supremacy. Uh, man, he says, I was shocked to see some of the most important men of the town quite tipsy. They were all there, bankers, lawyers, judges, doctors, fire chiefs, teachers, merchants, even one of the most or more fashionable pastors. Again, Jerry Sandusky, Jimmy Savile pedophilia in the system of white supremacy. All areas of biggest uh, people activity, you got everybody in the town has crowded around to ogle. We talked about that word a couple weeks back, to ogle these young children. Correct word usage there, the sexual connotation. When the white woman arrives and he says they had the price of looking been blindness, I would have looked that conditioning uh, with white women long running in the system of white supremacy actually reminded me of that scene from the Green Mile. 
with Michael Clark Duncan's character. They were watching the movie uh, in the prison and the white woman threw her hair and he like goes crazy. That's in a few uh, movies. I think that's in Shawshank Redemption where Morgan Freeman has the same response. Uh, and he talks about, in fact, where he says her breasts were firm and round as the domes of East Indian temples. And I stood so close as to see the fine skin texture and beads of pearly perspiration glistening like dew around the pink and erected buds of her nipples. Wow. <laughs> the uh, the artistry, but I mean, that is the religion of white supremacy where uh, a white woman's bosom is being equated to these, you know, Eastern temples, the religion, the sacredness of the white woman, long time conditioning. Uh, every time, I think it's great that he has the authenticity of having whites using the word coon. Always think it's a great reminder of whose term that is when we get carried away and frustrated about the black people and we want to lash at your coon. This did a reminder. Oh, where did I get that term? Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I ought to think twice about, you know, calling another black person a coon. Uh, dignified slave. Yeah, make sure I finish that. Mr. Fuller, when he says, what's the difference between a dignified slave and a silly slave? One is dignified and one is silly. He says dignified so many times and thinking that he's going to make such a big impact. I'm going to read my speech. They're going to be so impressed. I'm such a dignified little nigra. Nope, you're still just a nigra. And his I thought it was great when he was in the ring. He's fighting uh, Tatlock. He's tried to bargain with him. They're going to beat each other's or Tadlock is just he's content to beat his brains out uh, to win this prize. No compromise. Uh, but when the main character, he's got him going, he's thinking, oh, maybe I could win. He hears the white man yell out, I'm going to bet on the big one. And he's like, oh, no. Will that mess me up? Maybe I should try and throw the fight. And while he's sitting there confused, thinking about how he should respond, how whites are going to respond to him. He gets knocked out. I thought that was hugely symbolic as well, because I think a lot of times, all of us, we end up getting, I mean, that's the system of white supremacy, as opposed to just being able to be definitive with what we want to do. We end up having to think and rethink and triple think based on, well, wait a minute, how are whites going to respond? If I do this, will they do that? And this, that is the system of white supremacy and just not have that self-respect, that black self-respect, that confidence to just go out and execute and make things get things done i'll stop there uh do we have any folks that we missed completely who had commentary they wanted to share i uh, see mr demery four haven't heard from you did you have commentary sir uh yes sir uh please gus man be heard yes sir okay greetings um to the other callers and listeners um I got in late here, so I was. I had some notes. Uh, the one thousand three hundred ninety-six lights. It's <clears throat> uh, been speculation that you know he came up with that number because it it was the uh, uh, thirty-seven to the second power, uh, and the author was supposed to be thirty-seven years old, I guess, when he wrote the book, <clears throat> he used light as a metaphor for our understanding. And, um, and the ability to uh, conceive truth. And he talked about the darkness of lightness. Sometimes people don't want to see the light or the truth. They're comfortable 
with their ignorance, uh, stand in the dark. I I heard you mention about the uh, doing the uh, battle royal, the magnificent blonde with the yellow hair of the Kimmy doll. Uh, they used stripper, I think, as a tool uh, to sexually humiliate, humiliate the boys and uh, to accentuate uh, the fear. Uh, you can imagine some young boys looking at the white woman and then they, uh, during that time, you know, daring uh, young blacks to uh, even... Uh, return the glare, you know, of a white woman. Uh, and the white men were smiling at our fear, he said. So it just uh, gives you an idea of the uh, 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 pathological uh, 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 feelings of the way whites are. They like to see that suffering. And uh, when his grandfather was dying, um, overcome him with yeses, undermine him with grins, agree him to death and destruction. <clears throat> Let him swallow. You tell a bummer or bust wide open. And the last thing he said when he died was, learn it to the young ones. And uh, then he died. You know, that's probably the worst advice you can give anybody. And he said he was a traitor and, uh, and a spy. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to say well, quickly, um, that reminded me of a character I learned in history. Uh, uh, when I myself worked at the uh, Cemetery, there was a man, his name was James Parks. Uh, he was a black man. He was born in uh, 1843. He died in 1929 and 86. He was born a slave. Lived his whole life on the Arlington uh, uh, plantation there. And after he was free, <clears throat> he stayed on as a federal grave digger. And he was the first and only person to be born and died on that property all into National Cemetery. Uh, he did 68 years of service to that uh, uh, plantation, and he later died at the Freedom Village, just a short distance from that. His entire life was uh, <clears throat> as a slave. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Wow. 68 years. Wow. That's, uh, that is the system of white supremacy. Someone is worthy of being killed for that, in my opinion, going back to where the book started at. Uh, did we miss anyone? Anyone who dialed in with a hand up who had comments they wanted to get to before we get to the second audio segment? I just want to say one more thing, Gus, if I can. Let's hear it. It seems like uh, this is going to be a case study in um, white validation. Um, you know, just um, how he 
everything seems like he's he's longing for whites to validate him. Um, and um, I just think this, this so far, I haven't read the book before. And uh, it's a great choice because I would have never um, ever thought of reading this. It's not my type of material. But um, I just look at it as a case study in you know, white validation. Let's see how that evolves as the book continues. Uh, the person who dialed in last four digits, 9769. 9769, did you have commentary? Yes, sir. May, may, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings. Um, so far, I'm very intrigued by, by this book. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphors, as the previous callers mentioned. Um, one thing that I really got caught up on and um, I think is significant is um, the white woman in the boxing ring. Um, the book mentions that she had the American flag painted on her belly. And I just thought that was interesting in terms of the role of the role of white women in the system of white supremacy with regards to giving birth to racist progeny, if you will, and just how the flag is representative of that. Um, one other thing, it's real quick, um, with regards to the boys in the boxing gym, uh, boxing one another, uh, in the boxing match, I should say, I'm sorry. Um, this reminds me of a African proverb. I think it's real, I think it uh, epitomizes the situation we're in, in terms of always focusing our attention on non-white folks, especially black folks. And uh, the proverb was, two men, shall not argue in a burning home. Well, we are in a burning home and we do a lot of arguing. I'll mute my line. Thanks, Gus. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, do we have any other folks that if we uh, missed you completely and you want to get your comments in before we get to the second audio segment, uh, or if you want to respond to the question that was asked about the uh, sequence where the main character, where he's speaking to the enslaved black female and her enslaved children uh her question about that scene or about the grandfather's deathbed advice if anybody had comments to those before we get to the second audio everybody satisfied it makes makes his grandfather's advice really makes me think of um the recent kanye west comments Hmm. Okay. It's his choice. He chose to live his life um, as a spy and, you know, fill him with yeses. And, you know, um, you know that was a choice he made. Um, he didn't choose to defy. Um, he was a traitor. He called himself a traitor, a spy. Hmm. I'd be curious, uh, is it... Because I guess you could interpret this as now, is he saying that he's a traitor and they think that the white people think that, yes, he's well-behaved, he's meek, all of our yeses, well-behaved nigger, we got him. Is he saying that that's not the case, that he's been doing all this to for some other means? Uh, and what is that? Like, uh, yeah, I don't, it seems like you can maybe even interpret it a few different ways. Was he a traitor to black people because he was doing all the yeses and nos? Uh, any any other thoughts on granddad's deathbed advice? My inference was that he, he lived a long life where he was bound by uh, this system that we live in. And because of self-preservation, 
he behaved and he lived his life um, the way he did. And it seems like he's, he has some regret and he doesn't want his kids or his children to live the same way. I just thought it was self, self-preservation. Um, he had last words and he sort of wanted to get it off his chest. That's how I inferred it as being correct. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Well, it, it just sounds like, you know, he's playing on a white team. I mean, I think most of us play on a white team. We don't have a choice in this system but to play on this team. Otherwise, you're going to get killed. You're going to get locked up. And I think he's saying, you know, if, if you want to be a man, and none of us are a man in this system. And I think it bothers him that he wasn't really a man and he had to be a boy in this system. And he's shucking and jiving because he's just surviving, like like the last caller just said. And I'll meet my line. Thanks. Hmm, okay. Any other thoughts on Granddad's commentary, his statements? Can I be heard? Heard both of you. Uh, let's get our female caller first. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I think that. I think that he was, um, I think that he, it was sort of regret, right? It was regret for the way he acted because, and I think this is illustrated in the battle royale scene as well, you know, because regardless of all the grinning and the, you know, all the, um, I guess, sort of kowtowing to white people, he was still in the same position uh, that any other black person would be in. And I think that his last, you know, the words in the, at the end of the first chapter are really telling, you know, when he's at the circus with his grandfather and um, he keeps on opening these envelopes and when he gets to the final one, it says, to whom it may concern, keep this nigger boy running. You know, I think that's, that's the whole idea, right, that he, that he regretted doing that, that he regretted um, being subservient that he regretted, you know, just towing the line or not towing the line, but, but just, um, I don't want to use a metaphor, but just acting the way he thought white people wanted him to act and that that would get him something better than every other black person. And that he realized on his deathbed that that simply wasn't the case. Um, with that, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Uh, Caller in Wisconsin, the male caller who dialed in uh, yielded the floor. Thank you kindly. Did you have commentary? Yeah, I got a uh, got a question uh, in regarding to that that statement with by his grandpa. Um, he says that uh, I've been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country ever since I gave up my gun back in Reconstruction. So, was he a traitor all his days, or was he a spy in the enemy's country? since he gave up his gun. So I, I kind of looked at that and I just want to throw that question out there. And that's all I have on me in my line. Hmm. Good question. That a black person with a gun pretty much any time is, I don't know, that's generally that right there. I mean, <laughs> I get called militant all the time just for making a comment about, you know, being suspicious about white people, a black person with a gun, like, wow. And a gun during Reconstruction, like, wow, <laughs> what would a black person be doing with a gun during Reconstruction if not some counterterrorism or counterviolence? Like, 
I don't know. That's uh, doesn't seem like somebody who's just been a coon and an Uncle Tom and a sellout. If you're a black person with a gun during Reconstruction, that's that's what I mean. Like this does not strike me as someone who's just been messing around and tomming it up, cooning it up for their existence, and is telling their son that that that's not my interpretation of this. That other folks want to comment. I think during construction, um, one of the rules was they took the guns from black people. They made it illegal for black people to have guns. I think that's what he was alluding to. Okay. <laughs> but even still, I mean, we're talking like during the 19th century, right? Just to, you know, stamp this for a black person to have a gun at any point during that time. Why would you have a gun? <laughs> like, uh, doesn't sound like he's talking about hunting. It sounds like he's talking about having a gun for racial problems what sort of racial problems would a black person be facing in the 1800s in this part of the world hmm clan violence white terrorism hmm uh the folks have commentary on uh this granddad's commentary yes ma'am here yes sir yes i i think uh i think it's uh symbolic in a way because uh black people have as a whole uh it looked as though we were making some progress before the uh reconstruction uh when they drugged those uh black um uh, congressmen out and started uh you know all the racial terrorism and then it looks as though um Black people had to come up with a, another strategy, you know, so to speak. And it's exemplified through uh, grandfather's life. And then he, I guess, adopted this pacifist role. And uh, I was just wondering, though, that type of advice that he gave, uh, the writer was saying that it haunted him later, his grandfather's advice. Is it possible that that type of uh, philosophy or attitude can be passed on from generation to generation? I'll mute my line. I think it certainly can be uh, if you, when you say that attitude uh, in terms of if you're saying that attitude being grandfather's more passive uh, stance, it can be. One other thing that stood out uh, in this to me is I think the lack of clarity because it seems or i've read the book before my my interpretation is that the author is not quite clear about what this meant like what granddad was saying and i think that's a huge aspect of counter-racism uh it seems like number one granddad hadn't said anything about this before there hadn't been any commentary so all he got was this one shot before he died uh, as opposed to us having regular discourse about racism white supremacy this is what granddad was doing during the reconstruction days maybe he had to kill you know a white man was trying to rape your grandma who knows you know but just being able to talk about this regularly so that oh okay i got a comprehensive understanding of this is how he had to change his code they switched things up and it was crazy blah, blah, blah. that happens regularly where we do not do a good job of relaying information about racism white supremacy to younger non-white people happens all the time but just i think that keep that in mind as we proceed through the book i think the author uh the author seems to not understand 
or have some difficulty he has to keep coming back and revisiting what grandfather said to him what did he mean what was he telling me what was his advice uh we can get in one more comment before we get to second audio clip we have anybody else uh, who had a one more comment they wanted to get in before we move forward can i be heard real quick yes ma'am I, I was saying on my granddad's uh, comments, it sounded like he was trying to tell them to, I mean, he said just overdoing with yeses and, and shoving down their throat with how nice you're being. So I don't know if he was saying um, just do it, just be the biggest, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say clean, but just, I don't know, just be like the, be like the best black person that they think that you could be and be just that black person that's going to get on their nerves. You so, you so the white man's black person that you're just going to get on their nerves with how much you're going to try to agree with them and, and be on their side. And I could be interpreting it wrong too, but that's just my opinion. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, like I said, granddad, even though he's dead, the spirit of granddad will live for the remainder of the text. Uh, we will go ahead and get to chapter two. Uh, we are moving forward. This is the historically black college. It's such an expansive text. It covers, uh, covers so much, but we're moving on to college days for the main character, uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, a context of white supremacy. If you didn't get a chance to share during the first audio segment, uh, just make a note. We'll have ample time to share once the second segment concludes. Uh, this is chapter two. It was a beautiful college. The buildings were old and covered with vines and the roads gracefully winding, lined with hedges and wild roses that dazzled the eyes in the summer sun. Honeysuckle and purple wisteria hung heavy from the trees, and white magnolias mixed with their scents in the bee-humming air. <laughs> I've recalled it often here in my hole. How the grass turned green in the springtime, and how the mockingbirds fluttered their tails and sang, how the moon shone down on the buildings, how the bell in the chapel tower rang out, the precious short-lived hours, how the girls in bright summer dresses promenaded the grassy lawn. Many times, here at night, I've closed my eyes and walked along the forbidden road that winds past the girls' dormitories, past the hall with the clock in the tower, its windows warmly aglow, on down past the small, white home economics practice cottage, wider still in the moonlight, and on down the road with its sloping and turning, paralleling the black powerhouse with its engines droning, earth-shaking rhythms in the dark, its windows red from the glow of the furnace, on to where the road became a bridge over a dry riverbed, tangled with brush and clinging vines, the bridge of rustic logs, made for trysting, but virginal and untested by lovers. On up the road, past the buildings with the southern verandas half a city block long, to the sudden forking barren of buildings, birds, or grass, where the road turned off to the insane asylum. I was come this far and opened my eyes. The spell breaks and I try to re-see the rabbits, so tame through having never been hunted, that played in the hedges and along the road. And I see the purple and silver of thistle growing between the broken glass and sun-heated stones, the ants moving nervously in single file, and I 
turn and retrace my steps and come back to the winding road past the hospital, where at night in certain wards the gay student nurses dispensed a far more precious thing than pills to lucky boys in the know, and I come to stop at the chapel. And then it is suddenly winter, with the moon high above and the chimes in the steeple ringing and a sonorous choir of trombones rendering a Christmas carol. And over all is a quietness and an ache as though all the world were loneliness. And I stand and listen beneath the high-hung moon, hearing, A mighty fortress is our God, majestically mellow on four trombones, and then the organ. The sound floats over all, clear like the night, liquid, serene, and lonely. And I stand as for an answer and see in my mind's eye the cabins surrounded by empty fields beyond red clay roads and beyond a certain road, a river, sluggish and covered with algae more yellow than green in its stagnant stillness, past more empty fields to the sun-shrunk shacks at the railroad crossing, where the disabled veterans visited the whores, hobbling down the tracks on crutches and canes, sometimes pushing the legless thylus one in a red wheelchair. And sometimes I listen to hear if music reaches that far, but recall only the drunken laughter of sad, sad whores. And I stand in the circle where three roads converge near the statue, where we drilled four abreast down the smooth asphalt and pivoted and entered the chapel on Sundays, our uniforms pressed, shoes shined, minds laced up, eyes blind like those of robots to visitors and officials on the low, whitewashed reviewing stand. It's so long ago and far away that here in my invisibility, I wonder if it happened at all. Then in my mind's eye I see the bronze statue of the college founder, the cold father symbol, his hands outstretched in the breathtaking gesture of lifting a veil that flutters in hard metallic folds above the face of a kneeling slave. And I am standing puzzled, unable to decide whether the veil is really being lifted or lowered more firmly in place, whether I am witnessing a revelation or a more efficient blinding. And as I gaze, there is a rustle of wings and I see a flock of starlings flighting before me, and when I look again, the bronze face whose empty eyes look upon a world I have never seen runs with liquid chalk, creating another ambiguity to puzzle my groping mind. Why is a bird-soiled statue more commanding than one that is clean. Oh, long green stretch of campus. Oh, quiet songs at dusk. Oh, moon that kissed the steeple and flooded the perfumed nights. Oh, bugle that called in the morning. Oh, drum that marched us militarily at noon. What was real? What solid? What more than a pleasant, time-killing dream. For how could it have been real if now I am invisible? If real, why is it that I can recall in all that island of greenness no fountain, but one that was broken, corroded and dry, 
And why does no rain fall through my recollections, sound through my memories, soak through the hard, dry crust of the still-so-recent past? Why do I recall instead of the odor of seed bursting in springtime, only the yellow contents of the cistern spread over the lawn's dead grass? Why? And how? How and why? The grass did grow, and the green leaves appeared on the trees and filled the avenues with shadow and shade as sure as the millionaires descended from the north on Founder's Day each spring. And how they arrived. Came smiling, inspecting, encouraging, conversing in whispers, speech-making into the wide-open ears of our black and yellow faces, and each leaving a sizable check as he departed. I'm convinced it was the product of a subtle magic, the alchemy of moonlight. The school, a flower-studded wasteland, the rocks sunken, the dry winds hidden, the lost crickets chirping to yellow butterflies, and oh, 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 those multi-millionaires. They were all such a part of that other life that's dead that I can't remember them all. Time was as I was, but neither that time nor that I are anymore. But this one I remember. Near the end of my junior year, I drove for him during the week he was on the campus. A face pink like St. Nicholas, topped with a shock of silk-white hair. An easy, informal manner, even with me. A Bostonian, smoker of cigars, teller of polite Negro stories. Shrewd banker, skilled scientist, director, philanthropist. Forty years, a bearer of the white man's burden, and for sixty a symbol of the great traditions. We were driving, the powerful motor purring and filling me with pride and anxiety. The car smelled of mints and cigar smoke. Students looked up and smiled in recognition as we rolled slowly past. I had just come from dinner, and in bending forward to suppress a belch, I accidentally pressed the button on the wheel, and the belch became a loud and shattering blast of the horn. Folks in the road turned and stared. I'm awfully sorry, sir, I said, worried, lest he report me to Dr. Bledsoe, the president, who had refused to allow me to drive again. Perfectly all right. Perfectly. Where shall I drive you, sir? Let me see. Through the rearview mirror, I could see him studying a wafer-thin watch, replacing it in the pocket of his checked waistcoat. His shirt was soft silk, set off with a blue and white polka-dotted bow tie. His manner was aristocratic, his movements dapper and suave. It's early to go in for the next session, he said. Suppose you just drive any way you like. Have you seen all the campus, sir? Yes, I, I think so. I was... One of the original founders, you know. Gee, I, I didn't know that, sir. Then I'll have to try some of the roads. Of course I knew he was a founder, but I knew also that it was advantageous to flatter rich white folks. Perhaps he'd give me a large tip or a suit or a scholarship next year. Anywhere else you like. The campus is part of my life, and I know my life rather well. Yes, sir. He was still smiling. In a moment, the green campus with its vine-covered buildings was behind us. The car bounded over the road. How was the campus part of his life, I wondered? And how did one learn his life rather well? Young man, you're part 
of a wonderful institution. It is a great dream become reality. Yes, sir, I said. I feel as lucky to be connected with it as you no doubt do yourself. I came here years ago when all your beautiful campus was barren ground. There were no trees, no flowers, no fertile farmland. That was years ago, before you were born. I listened with fascination, my eyes glued to the white line dividing the highway as my thoughts attempted to sweep back to the times of which he spoke. Even your parents were young. Slavery was just recently past. Your people did not know in what direction to turn, and I must confess many of mine didn't know in what direction they should turn either. But your great founder did. He was my friend, and I believed in his vision. So much so that sometimes I don't know whether it was his vision or mine. <laughs> he chuckled softly, wrinkles forming at the corners of his eyes. But of course, it was his. I only assisted. I came down with him to see the barren land and did what I could to render assistance. It has been my pleasant fate to return each spring and observe the changes that the years have wrought. That has been more pleasant and satisfying to me than my own work. It has been a pleasant fate indeed. His voice was mellow and loaded with more meaning than I could fathom. As I drove, faded and yellowed pictures of the school's early days displayed in the library flashed across the screen of my mind, coming fitfully and fragmentarily to life. Photographs of men and women in wagons drawn by mule teams and oxen dressed in black, dusty clothing, people who seemed almost without individuality. A black mob that seemed to be waiting, looking with blank faces. And among them, the inevitable collection of white men and women in smiles, clear of features, striking, elegant, and confident. Until now, and although I could recognize the founder and Dr. Bledsoe among them, the figures in the photographs had never seemed actually to have been alive, but were more like signs or symbols one found on the last pages of the dictionary. But now I felt that I was sharing in a great work, and with the car leaping leisurely beneath the pressure of my foot, I identified myself with the rich man reminiscing on the rear seat. A pleasant fate, he repeated and I hope yours will be as pleasant. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank, thank you, sir, I said, pleased that he wished something pleasant for me. But at the same time, I was puzzled. How could anyone's fate be pleasant? I had always thought of it as something painful. No one I knew spoke of it as pleasant, not even Woodridge, who made us read Greek plays. We were beyond the farthest extension of the school-owned lands now, and I suddenly decided to turn off the highway down a road that seemed unfamiliar. There were no trees, and the air was brilliant. Far down the road, the sun glared cruelly against a tin sign nailed to a barn. A lone figure bending over a hoe on the hillside raised up wearily and waved, more a shadow against the skyline than a man. How far have we come? I heard over my shoulder. Uh, just about a mile, sir. I don't remember this section, he said. I didn't answer. I was thinking of the first person who'd mentioned anything like fate in my presence. My grandfather. There had been nothing pleasant about it, and I had tried to forget it. Now, riding here in the powerful car with this 
white man who was so pleased with what he called his fate, I felt a sense of dread. My grandfather would have called this treachery, and I could not understand in just what way it was. Suddenly I grew guilty at the realization that the white man might have thought so too. What would he have thought? Did he know that Negroes like my grandfather had been freed during those days just before the college had been founded? As we came to a side road, I saw a team of oxen hitched to a broken-down wagon, the ragged driver dozing on the seat beneath the shade of a clump of trees. Did you see that, sir? I asked over my shoulder. What was it? Uh, the ox team, sir. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't see it for the trees, he said, looking back. It's good timber. I I'm sorry, sir. Shall I turn back? No, it isn't much, he said. Go on. I drove on, remembering the lean, hungry face of the sleeping man. He was the kind of white man I feared. The brown fields swept out to the horizon. A flock of birds dipped down, circled, swung up, and out as though linked by invisible strings. Waves of heat danced above the engine hood. The tires sang over the highway. Finally, I overcame my timidity and asked him, Sir, why did you become interested in the school? I think, he said, thoughtfully raising his voice, it was because I felt, even as a young man, that your people were somehow closely connected with my destiny. Do you understand? Not so clearly, sir, I said, ashamed to admit it. You have studied Emerson, haven't you? Emerson, sir? Ralph Waldo Emerson? I was embarrassed because I hadn't. Not yet, sir. We uh, haven't come to him yet. No, he said with a note of surprise. Well, never mind. I am a New Englander, like Emerson. You must learn about him, for he was important to your people. He had a hand in your destiny. Yes, perhaps that is what I mean. I had a feeling that your people were somehow connected with my destiny, that what happened to you was connected with what would happen to me. I slowed the car, trying to understand. Through the glass I saw him gazing at the long ash of his cigar, holding it delicately in his slender, manicured fingers. Yes. You are my fate, young man. Only you can tell me what it really is. Do you understand? I think I do, sir. I mean that upon you depends the outcome of the years I have spent in helping your school. That has been my real life's work, not my banking or my researches, but my first-hand organizing of human life. I saw him now, leaning toward the front seat, speaking with an intensity which had not been there before. It was hard not to turn my eyes from the highway and face him. There is another reason, a reason more important, more passionate, and yes, even more sacred than all the others, he said, no longer seeming to see me, but speaking to himself alone. Yes, even more sacred than all the others. A girl, my daughter. She was a being more rare, more beautiful, purer, more perfect, and more delicate than the wildest dream of a poet. I could never believe her to be my own flesh and blood. Her beauty was a wellspring of purest water of life. And to look upon her was to drink and drink and drink again. She was 
rare, a perfect creation, a work of purest art, a delicate flower that bloomed in the liquid light of the moon, a nature not of this world, a personality like that of some biblical maiden, gracious and queenly, I found it difficult to believe her my own. Suddenly he fumbled in his vest pocket and thrust something over the back of the seat, surprising me. Here, young man, you owe much of your good fortune in attending such a school to her. I looked upon the tinted miniature, framed in engraved platinum. I almost dropped it. A young woman of delicate, dreamy features looked up at me. She was very beautiful. I thought at the time so beautiful that I did not know whether I should express admiration to the extent I felt it, or merely act polite. And yet I seem to remember her, or someone like her, in the past. I know now that it was the flowing costume of soft, flimsy material that made for the effect. Today, dressed in one of the smart, well-tailored, angular, sterile, streamlined, engine-turned, air-conditioned, modern outfits you see in the women's magazines, she would appear as ordinary as an expensive piece of machine-tooled jewelry, and just as lifeless. Then, however, I shared something of his enthusiasm. She was too pure for life, he said sadly, too pure and too good and too... Beautiful. We were sailing together, touring the world, just she and I, when she became ill in Italy. I thought little of it at the time, and we continued across the Alps. When we reached Munich, she was already fading away. While we were attending an embassy party, she collapsed. The best medical science in the world could not save her. It was a lonely return, a bitter voyage. I have never recovered. I have never forgiven myself. Everything I've done since her passing has been a monument to her memory. He became silent, looking with his blue eyes far beyond the field stretching away in the sun. I returned the miniature, wondering what in the world had made him open his heart to me. That was something I never did. It was dangerous. First, it was dangerous if you felt like that about anything— because then you'd never get it, or something or someone would take it away from you. Then it was dangerous because nobody would understand you, and they'd only laugh and think you were crazy. So you see, young man, you are involved in my life quite intimately, even though you've never seen me before. You are bound to a great dream and to a beautiful monument. If you become a good farmer, a chef, a preacher, a doctor, singer, mechanic, whatever you become, and even if you fail, you are my fate, and you must write me and tell me the outcome. I was relieved to see him smiling through the mirror. My feelings were mixed. Was he kidding me? Was he talking to me like someone in a book just to see how I would take it? Or could it be, I was almost afraid to think, that this rich man was just the tiniest bit crazy? How could I tell him his fate he raised his head and our eyes met for an instant in the glass. Then I lowered mine to the blazing white line that divided the highway. The trees along the road were thick and tall. We took a curve. Flocks of quail sailed up and over a field, brown, brown, sailing down, blending. Will you promise to tell me my fate, I heard. Sir, will you? Uh, right now, sir, I asked with embarrassment. It's up to you, 
Now, if you like. I was silent. His voice was serious, demanding. I could think of no reply. The motor purred, an insect crushed itself against the windshield, leaving a yellow mucus smear. I don't know now, sir. This is only my junior year. But you'll tell me when you know. I'll try, sir. Good. When I took a quick glance into the mirror, he was smiling again. I wanted to ask him if being rich and famous and helping to direct the school to become what it was wasn't enough. But I was afraid. What do you think of my idea, young man? He said. I, I don't know, sir. I only think that you have what you're looking for. Because if I fail or, or, or leave school, it doesn't seem to me it would be your fault because you helped make the school what it is. And you think that enough? Uh, yes, sir, that's what the president tells us. You have yours and you got it yourself. And we have to lift ourselves up the same way. But that's only part of it, young man. I have wealth and reputation and prestige. All that is true. But your great founder had more than that. He had tens of thousands of lives dependent upon his ideas and upon his actions. What he did affected your whole race. In a way, he had the power of a king, or in a sense, of a god. That, I've come to believe, is more important than my own work, because more depends upon you. You are important because if you fail, I have failed by one individual, one defective cog. It didn't matter so much before, but now I'm growing old and it has become very important. But you don't even know my name, I thought, wondering what it was all about. I suppose it is difficult for you to understand how this concerns me, but as you develop, you must remember that I am dependent upon you to learn my fate. Through you and your fellow students, I become, let us say, 300 teachers, 700 trained mechanics, 800 skilled farmers, and so on. That way I can observe in terms of living personalities to what extent my money, my time, my hopes have been fruitfully invested. I also construct a living memorial to my daughter, understand? I can see the fruits produced by the land that your great founder has transformed from barren clay to fertile soil. His voice ceased, and I saw the strands of pale blue smoke drifting across the mirror and heard the electric lighter snap back on its cable into place behind the back of the seat. I, I think I understand you better now, sir, I said. Very good, my boy. Shall I continue in this direction, sir? By all means, he said, looking out at the countryside. I've never seen this section before. It's new territory for me. That is where we will conclude this week. We're still in Chapter 2, so we'll pick up there next week, provided we do not have any protests uh, from folks saying that they think uh, this book is horrible and would be the worst waste of time <clears throat> on the context of white supremacy. But we are in Chapter 2. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number 641 seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate favorite character is coming up next week or yeah i think might be my favorite character in the book is coming up next week uh, folks, if we have not heard from you at all and you have commentary that you would like to share on the text, uh, line should be open. We'll get uh, everybody uh, to make sure they get their comments in, but just making sure we don't miss anyone at all. Uh, let's see. 
anybody that we've not heard from at all uh, have comments that they wanted to share? Your line should be open. Is there anyone that we missed completely? Great. Don't think we missed anybody. Uh, so all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, I'm glad we were reading it again. And um, I wanted to point out that the, the white person or white man that he was driving around, when he said that, you know, I want to know if, what's my fate. And, and I've got, you know, stuff invested in you and I've been invested time and money in black people and basically he was saying you know what's going to be my return and then he said um and i'm getting old and i i just want to know that i did the right thing it reminded me of the old white uh even um uh just drop body old woman that said that i i didn't you know emmett Till didn't do it and I just want everybody to know. And I think she did it because she's getting old. And I think a lot of old white people, they'd go ahead with the racism and all of that. And then they'd get there and, and start getting into their Christendom and feeling like they worth a damn. And then they're 80 and 90 years old, and now they're ready to do confessions. And so that's what that reminded me of. But great reading, and thanks for letting me say something. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Ivy, if you have commentary, you should be with us. Uh, yes, sir. Great discussion. Greetings to all the callers on the line. Man, this book is, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's incredible. And uh, I agree with the caller who said that it's beautiful. I uh, think so, too. I think that it's, it's very poetic and it's very witty. Um, and it, it, what's interesting is that, you know, I, I know a caller said that, you know, he didn't know that, you know, black people you know, wrote like this because a lot of times our our genius and our intellect is suppressed by racists. And this actually reminds me of Jay from St. Louis, uh, one of the callers. Like he, whenever he provides commentary, he sounds just like the narrator and just like the author of this book. Like he speaks in a very uh, poetic and very witty um, way. And I thought that the narrator, he was also very... Uh, very, very lively and, and, and animated, and he really uh, illustrated what the author was, um, seemed like, intending. In and I wanted to ask you, Gus, is the narrator the author or someone else? Oh, it's someone else. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, uh, he did a, he did an, he's doing an incredible job, and um, I'm really enjoying uh, just the way he is uh, narrating this book, and um, I think that's, that's really all I had, and uh I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Indeed. The uh, narrator gave his name at the beginning of the text. I'm a victim. I forgot, but I will make sure to share it again uh, next week. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, ma'am, Barry. Yes, sir. Okay, yes, what stood out to me, um, actually, when he was, he made it to the campus, and the historically uh, black 
colleges and universities, I was thinking in my mind, is probably littered with uh, monuments of white races who had used blacks and other non-whites to uh, gain wealth. And actually those pictures and images, and, you know, he was uh, talking about in the book, it almost seems like they're alive and real. <clears throat> but then the images of uh, blacks was always in a uh, degraded uh, manner. I noticed uh, nowadays that the historical uh, black colleges or including black monuments, you know, on their campuses. So as to call some uh, positive uh, imagery, you know, against all of this negativity. But then the school official practicing racism on the young student and making him seem as if he's happening. And uh, yeah, also big ups to uh, Joe Morgan uh, <clears throat> uh, reading the book. He's got uh, excellent uh, uh, skills. And then the founder being elevated to a god, the white founder, and then the uh, school official's daughter being elevated to a goddess. So getting those images into the young black minds was uh, <clears throat> an act of racism. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate Mr. Demery, <clears throat> Mr. Demery for getting uh, our narrator, Mr. Morgan's name. Kudos, definitely. He's done a great job. Um, narrating I was going to say performing that was I think the word that was used for the hate you give other folks that we've not heard at all if you have commentary uh, on Invisible Man line should be open so funny the the recent mega series just concluded scandal cowbell insert there as well i'm i am sure he'll be way better known for his work on scandal than this here audiobook which is way better than scandal ever could be a uh, person who dialed in last four digits uh zero seven four seven did you have commentary uh yeah thanks for uh picking this book that's um I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's kind of my second go around with it since you uh, recommended it so much. I have a question about the prologue section when uh, I guess the uh, narrator was having a dream. And he talked about, maybe this has already been commented on, but he had a dream about a uh, slave woman and described her as ivory, which I thought was the color white or off-white. I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know what the significance of that was when I read it. Let's go back to the prologue and uh, I entered and looked around and heard an old woman singing a spiritual as full of 
Welts Merch as Flamenco, and beneath that lay a still lower level on which I saw a beautiful girl, the color of ivory, pleading in a voice like my mother's as she stood before a group of slave owners who bid for her naked body, and below that I found a lower level and a more rapid tempo, and I heard someone shout, and then he gets into the whole uh, church scene, the black is and black ain't, hallelujah, all that. That is interesting. Um, this is not the same slave scene that we get to later, presumably with the folks where he's talking to the mom about freedom and all that. But yeah, that is interesting. Um, girl, the color of ivory. Yeah. I just wondering, you know, is this going to be kind of a recurrent theme of the uh, sort of idealization of white womanhood, uh, which seems to be, you know, I'm not far enough along in the book. Um, but uh, that's something I'll just keep keep in mind as I read it. But yeah, I agree that uh, that uh, chapter with the battle royale. I mean, it seems like it covers every aspect of uh, racism, white supremacy, as uh, Mr. Fuller always described. All nine areas are encompassing that book, and I can I personally can really identify with the uh, narrator because. Uh, you know, deception is so much a part of uh, the system. You know, here's a young man who's uh, trying to better himself and thinks he's going into a situation where he's going to be rewarded. And uh, it's just total terror. And, uh, you know, I think that just sort of, for me, embodies everything that, that, that uh, white supremacy does. Uh, thanks. I'll meet my line. Thank you. Absolutely. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, it's, they mentioned the grandfather, who's uh, the black male's grandfather again in this chapter. I noticed they use the word treachery, but I, I can't remember how they related that word treachery with his grandfather. Um, uh, the, the black, uh, the non-white male driver also said that he feared this white man. I thought it was on page 41. And I, I thought about, uh, Francis Cress Wells and saying, you know, I was saying, uh, black people fear, fear, fear white people, right? We don't talk about racism, white supremacy. And, um, I think, you know, you know how the white passenger said, uh, your people are connected with my destiny. And I think that was a quote by Emerson. I think they, what they said. And I think, um, what happened. And I think you said what happened to black people, what happened to, to me, meaning what happened to black people, what happened to white people, which means white people fear us lynching them and cutting off their testicles and all the other, and raping their white women. I think white people fear that to this day, which which is why this, you know, the system is so dominant today. They really, you can tell by, you know, this world imperialism, they they really fear us with the size of their military and all this worldwide. And I think the uh, the white um, passenger also, it seems like he was attracted to his own daughter. I don't know if that's like an anti-sexual thing, but he said his daughter was a perfect creation. 
And uh, he used a lot of, you know, you know, flowery words when he was talking about his, his own daughter. And, uh, you know, um, and like I think another caller said, I think Mr. Demery said that, you know, you know, slavery, you know, the slavery financed these schools, you know, Yale and Harvard, if it wasn't for the system of slavery, these schools would never exist. You, you think about, you know, the colors that he used, these green campuses and these statues. And, you know, I always think about how it was all because of slavery that they built these things and in this whole country even. So I think there's a lot of, you know, white guilt in this section here. And that's all I got, Gus. And I'll meet my line. Thanks. Mm. Appreciate that, sir. Uh, the the section where the word treachery was used in the second audio segment, he had already said it the first time around, but in the second audio segment, uh, when uh, the main character is driving around uh, Mr. Norton, the white man, and fate first comes up he says i didn't and this is the narrator i didn't answer i was thinking of the person the first person who'd mentioned anything like fate in my presence my grandfather there had been nothing pleasant about it and i tried to forget it now riding here in the powerful car with this white man who was so pleased with what he called his fate i felt a sense of dread my grandfather would have called this treachery and I could not understand in just what way it was. There's that word again. Uh, any other folks who dialed in with a hand up have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Caller in Wisconsin. Hi, uh, again. Um, yes, yeah, so I was struck by at the beginning of the second chapter, he talks about the ants moving nervously in single file um, when he's when he's describing the campus, and then later on he says, maybe a couple of paragraphs later, he says, uh, he's talking about the students and saying, we drilled four abreast down the smooth asphalt, antivited and entered the chapel on Sundays, our uniforms pressed, shoes shine, minds laced up, eyes blind like those of robots to visitors and officials on the low whitewash reviewing stand. And I thought it was sort of a callback to the ants moving nervously. You know, because these students are just, they're being trained to work for these white men. Or for, for Just as the ants are trained to work for the queen, and they're easily, just as easily crushed as the ants. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I do remember, and, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, I do remember um, the founder coming up several times in the book as well. And the first time I read this book, I thought, that he was referring to a Booker T. Washington type, sort of like a Tuskegee, but now reading it again, I I don't think so. So maybe I misread that. So that was kind of interesting. Um, that's all I had. Everybody else is giving great commentary. I'll meet my line. You uh, do not think this is referring to Booker T. Washington uh, because... Oh, I um, so the passage where he says, um, as I drove, faded and yellow pictures of the school's early days displayed in the library flashed across the screen of my mind, coming fitfully and fragmentarily to life. Um, this is on it's on page thirty nine in my uh, copy, so probably around there. 
Um, photographs of men and women in wagons drawn by mule teams and oxen dressed in black, dusty clothing, people who seemed almost without individuality, a black mob that seemed to be waiting, looking with blank faces, and among them the inevitable collection of white men and women in smiles, clear features, striking, elegant, and confident. Until now, and although I could recognize the founder and Dr. Bledsoe among them, the figures in the photographs had never seemed actually to have been alive. So I don't know, maybe I misinterpreted that, and uh, maybe I misinterpreted that, excuse me. And um, it seems, I guess from the way he described it, this time I'm reading, I assume that the founder is white. Over the last time I read it, I assumed that the founder was a Booker T. Washington type. Um, and then later on in the book, as he continues to talk about the founder, I won't get ahead of that, but I, won't, I mean, I won't get ahead because it'll be more interesting when we get there. Um, it seems like they're, he's juxtaposing this Booker T. Washington, or he's juxtaposing Booker T. Washington against the founder. So that's why I assume that he's not talking about a Booker T. Washington type. I see. Uh, I guess I'll the cast down your buckets is kind of Booker T. Washington, a famous portion from his speech that he gave uh, in the 19th century, uh, known as the Wizard of Tuskegee uh, for the HBCU down in Alabama. I do think the book is referencing him. I think some of the confusion might be in what you're talking about in terms of who, quote unquote, founded this institution. Uh, and I think that the power source is clearly whites, although there is a black person, Booker T. Washington type figure that uh, is listed as kind of being the person who put all this together. So I think that might be where some of the confusion is. But I definitely think there's a Booker T. reference in all of this that will become clearer as we move along in the text, I think, or I hope. Yeah, I seem to remember there being some sort of um, comparison made between the founder and Booker T. Washington. So, um, and I, forgive me, I haven't read this book in a long time. So um, it's sort of like rereading it or reading it anew. Um, but I, I, yeah, I could see both. I, maybe I got confused by that paragraph, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll just mute my line. I'll be quiet now. Thanks. More detail to come. We haven't even got the uh, Dr. Dr. Bledsoe uh, that care. I don't even think we've heard from him yet. So yeah, I think more of that'll be clear as we keep reading. Uh, other folks that have a hand up, if you have commentary as well, uh, or if you have questions, that's also uh, great. Any other folks who had commentary? I forgot to add earlier that the book is so uh, well written that uh, to me it reads like a like an autobiography, even though it's uh, fiction um, and even though it's you know very poetic in nature, just the way that you know all the metaphors and just even the way other ways in which uh, it's written. But it uh, it speaks to uh, what Thomas in New York said about authenticity because. I didn't think of that particular word, but that idea uh, when it first started and just throughout that it just it sounds so authentic that to the point, as I said, that it, it reads like an, an autobiography to me. And uh, I'm in my Appreciate that, Ivy. Uh, just wanted to get in uh, as well. 
this book, uh, I think Ralph Ellison was a uh, perfectionist. He was still dissatisfied with the text, even after it won all these awards and accolades and everything. Uh, it's supposed to be divided into three parts, unless my memory is failing me. Those three parts are divided into three parts. And all of the transitions in the book happen on a piece of paper. We talked about this with Dr. Kevorkian. That's something that you can pay attention to. In the book, you can already see the pieces of paper. Uh, we started off with the scholarship. He gets the briefcase, his scholarship right at the boxing match, and he's got his uh, speech. So we start there. And you can just follow the pieces of paper as we move through the book that he and. Uh, yeah, we can just follow the pieces of paper. Granddad's dream uh, with the letter in the briefcase. Keep this nigga boy running. Just follow the pieces of paper as we transition through the book. Uh, the caller uh, who dialed, and I guess you're on the vote line, uh, Mimi. If you had commentary, you should be with us. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. Um, wanted to say that I think the book is well written and is really thought provoking. Um, does this character, and this is something after my comments, maybe someone can answer. Um, does the character have a name or um, not? But, not. Uh, got it. Okay, thank you. Uh, and kudos to the narrator, loving uh, that. Um, my observations, a couple, is the, the character, um, though not clearly codified, he does seem to stay in the question lane, to quote Mr. Fuller, quite a bit. You know, he's a thinker. Um, the comment that a former uh, caller mentioned it, I thought that uh, the daughter, the description of the daughter by the father was weird, kind of murky and disturbing. So I agree with the former caller. It seems a bit much. Um, he talks a lot, it seems to me, about loneliness and that part of the beginning of the opening of the second uh, chapter. And I was trying to put that together, but I really couldn't quite pull it all that together. And then uh, he talks and seems to be in a dreamlike state quite a bit. So I'm trying to follow that thread as well. Um, the part about the college father, uh, the kneeling slave, the veil, these are just some threads. I'm trying to get a sense of what is being um, discussed here and uh, blinding versus uh, the veil and some of those some symbolic uh, language. Um, uh, something about the driver uh, as in his junior year, uh, the, the uh, passenger, the white fellow, uh, talked a lot of, was talking and smiling. It just seemed like a nice kind of fellow just telling, you know, Negro stories and smiling. And uh, something that I found interesting is something that we were still struggling with is the trinkets. Um, the part about when he was driving and the, the smiles of recognition and acknowledgement that uh, the car, and even though he's the, uh, um, what is it, the, the term when you drive, the chauffeur, uh, he still, you know, some recognition there. So uh, interesting. And uh, so uh, just to wrap it up, um, the part about the interest in the school and the destiny part, 
kind of trying to put that together right now. And I'm going to say that I think at this point, without further reading that, it seems to be saying to me that how do we get control after Reconstruction and slavery over the thinking of Black people? So we put them in this um, the schools and try to train them so they can continue to serve us. Uh, and based on how they do, we'll know how to refine our system of racism, white supremacy. That's kind of what I'm trying to see if that's the direction we're going or not. But uh, I'll wrap up my comments with that. Thank you. Appreciate that, Mimi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, other folks, if you dialed in, we have about ooh, less than 10 minutes. If other folks dialed in, if you have comments you want to make sure you get in, speak now. Do not dally. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of people saying the book is well written. And I think it's well written, too, you know, but... That that was a problem we had with the hate you give because that book wasn't well written and we hated it. But what if the hate you give was well written with the same content? I mean, maybe this is the wrong place. Maybe I should save this for later. But that was just my thought that that came across. Um, and I'm eating my line right now. Thanks. Well, the writing quality of the hate you give is like lowest if i have 99 problems with the hate you give and i got 99 problems with the hate you give writing quality is going to be like the last thing on the list like that would not do much of anything in terms of in most of my gripes with the writing quality just go back to the other things the other 99 things that are on the list anywho uh any other folks have commentary they want to get in I agree with that about uh, the hate you give. It's so much that that book is just trash on so many levels, and the commentary tonight uh, for this book, I agree with other callers that it's been great. I mean, my life. Appreciate that, Ivy. Uh, any other folks have commentary they need to get in? I set out that book, the hate you give. I set out. I didn't. She says she protests. <laughs> I would have sat out to pull a Kaepernick on uh, the hate. I'm going to sit out when the movie uh, comes out. I'm going to sit out then too. Uh, any other folks have uh, have commentary that they want to get in? Grant, I can get my notes in. I forgot I didn't even read my notes that I had. Uh, he used the uh, he, he referred to the students at the HBCU as gay students. Uh, it just stood out. This book written in 1953, that term had a totally different uh, connotation, I think. I don't think that's what he meant about any same gender loving activity on this campus. Uh, I thought his commentary about the statue, particularly in our current context with a racist statue seemingly coming down every other day as though that solves a problem really appreciated all of that especially the beauty in the writing like it's beyond just this is well written it's what are the sentences that are well written for example then in my mind's eye i see the bronze statue of the college founder the cold father symbol his hands outstretched 
in breathtaking in the breathtaking gesture of lifting a veil that flutters in hard metallic folds above the face of a kneeling slave and i'm standing puzzled unable to decide whether the veil is really being lifted or lowered more firmly in place whether i am witnessing a revelation or a more efficient blinding wow that is way better than anything i heard in the hate to give and beyond just the writing in terms of really thinking when it seems whites are coming to bring you a gift trojan horse we miss pam when it seems that they're coming to break you a gift and that's not what it is at all it is just the painful refinement of white supremacy beautiful <laughs> right there uh the next paying attention to the colors when he's talking about these pink faced uh white people a face pink like saint nichols topped with a shock of silk white hair when he's talking about uh mr norton the white man he's been driving i'm saying his name is mr norton i don't even know if he's been uh introduced has he said his name is mr Anyway, if he hasn't, you will catch it uh, next week, all of the proper naming for the white people. If he has not said his name is Mr. Norton. Continuing. Uh, <laughs> the writing, the writing and capturing the essence of the refined racist when he says uh, Mr. Norton, the guy he's driving around. An easy and formal manner, even with me, a Bostonian smoker of cigars, teller of polite Negro stories. <laughs> I was even thinking, what is a polite negro story and i think uh, even in my mind i can think of the whites that i've been around to they know a black mark from my yoga class polite negro story about the black male that he's working on his racial discrimination case this is a uh, cigar smoke again dr welsing moment uh the even the scene i thought it was great the authenticity where he's driving and he's just eating and he doesn't want to be human. He doesn't want to belch in front of this uh, race soldier after he's eaten. And so he has all this stress about figuring out what to do. And I don't want to belch and get in trouble with the white man. And he accidentally steps on the gas and belches anyway. And then he has to do all this apologizing and everything. So many of us are in that position because of the system of white supremacy and just hoping uh, that we do not do something that causes us to be lashed, terminated, whatever it is. Uh, I, as I said, grandfather's going to dominate the text. You can just go back and reread what he said at the beginning because it's going to keep coming up. And it seems that the author, the main character himself, does not grasp what grandfather has really worth. He at least has to keep coming back and thinking about it. I guess I should have asked that, too. That's pretty major. Main character not having a name and he's not going to get a name anywhere anywhere uh, in the text. That's what's going to be for the whole time. What does that mean? What does that convey? You all can comment on that as we roll, but he's not going to be named uh, in the book. Uh, I agree with the commentary about the white man talking about his daughter. I thought that was religion of white supremacy, just really solidifying. And that's, I mean, that's how it is now in terms of whites and how they are projected, how we're conditioned to see them all the time, especially from white educators. Uh, that's how we're trained to think about and see them as being perfect. There was so much of that in the hate you give white characters being described as perfect uh, and normal, delicate. Even he says, uh, and I love, I'll, I'll stop here. As I said, the one, one bit of the beauty that I like about this book is that I think you will see a evolution in the main character's understanding of racism, white supremacy. And you even, 
you see some of that now when uh, this white man is talking about his daughter and, you know, she's all this and that. The main character, he says, I know now that it was the flowing costume of soft, flimsy material that made for the effect. Today, dressed in one of the smart, well-tailored, angular, sterile, streamlined, engine-turned, air-conditioned, modern outfits you see in women's magazines, she would appear as ordinary as an expensive piece of machine tool jewelry and just as lifeless. Then, however, I shared some of his enthusiasm. That self-reflection right there as the narrator is telling us about this incident that, oh man, at the time he had me. I was like, oh yeah, she's just so beautiful and I want to make sure I impress him and don't belch or anything else. Now, looking back on this, I totally understand how it's going to, that is very rare in my experience to get a book where someone is, even though this is fiction, is commenting and reflecting on, wow, this happened and look at my behavior when I was more confused and how I thought about these whites. That is not the opinion that I have now. There's going to be a lot of that as we continue through the book. I don't hear that. I don't even hear that very often from most real people where they're able to be that honest about, wow, this is what I did and how I thought when I was more confused. I have a better understanding now. I don't think that way anymore. I could be an error. I'll even take you up on an email if folks want to email in that this is whack. Gus, whatever. I've listened to the cows, but you really blew it on this one. Ralph Ellison's book is trash. Please pick something else. You can drop an email. If it is not unanimous, I will update and let folks know tomorrow. With that, we will call it a broadcast. Uh, you can tune in next week, provided we're still reading this. You can tune in next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and we'll resume chapter two. Thanks to all of the folks who participated. I hope it was constructive. Hope we learned something. Uh, we'll see what we're reading next Friday. Uh, we will be here tomorrow, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific for the compensatory call-in. Looking forward to catching up on what went down over the last week. Uh, that said, certainly sobriety, sobriety would be best. Mr. Ellison began his novel with a bad experience where someone slipped him a reefer. Another reason sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. They do slip Mickey's in drinks and, you know, whatever else, even still 2018. Uh, if you want to be out frolicking, having a good time. Great. It's warm. I want to do the same thing. You still want to be codified, uh, especially if you're out having a good time. Race soldiers do not pause just because the weather is nice. Uh, Dr. Welsing and many of the other folks we esteem they would strongly advise, yes, let's be sober. Let's take extraordinary care of our brain computers so that we can think and articulate all of the genius that has been bestowed to us. And we can maximize and apply that towards solving the problem, racism, white supremacy. If we're going to be in a vehicle, let's definitely make sure we are sober and buckled up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. There is a police shooting in Invisible Man 2. Uh, with that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time 
we are in contact with other black people. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.